This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Tuesday. It's a, it's a good day, folks. It's ice cream sandwich day. How do you know it's a good day? Because it's ice cream sandwich You've day. You've been awake for how long? Two hours. Aren't you getting the cart ahead of the horse here? Yeah. We have the whole rest he's, of the day ahead of us. He's had plenty of time to eat at least five ice cream sandwiches. And Ben is in control of most of what's going on in the next couple hours. I know. Isn't that scary? And today is a good day? Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It might be okay at the moment. We'll see about the good. We ben, have a couple more hours. Ben is making ice cream cupcake sandwiches. Really? He's he's partnering with a cupcake company, aren't you, Ben? Um, not as of yet. So was that happening oh, later today? Because that would make today he a didn't good hear, day. Oh, I set something up for him. Oh, okay. He's going to be rich. <laughs> There's a guy that wants a cupcake with ice cream. I said, I know a guy. It's going to be a great day. Yeah. You see, you, you're making connections. You bring people together. I'm a connector. Did you tell him my slogan? Yep. In the bathtub. Not that gross. Not that gross. Wow. Raven ice cream. That's Not a, that gross. Make a t-shirt. I'd wear that. You know, we, we laugh about Ben's ice cream uh, deal, but it's, it's, a, it's a real thing. It is. And it's, a... it's very good. And in fact, Sadie has tried it. And when we got her back from the hospital after having her stomach mm-hmm, pumped, mm-hmm. she said, See, excellent adventure. Ben's first step was to incorporate in Estonia because yeah. they, they have a, a low corporate tax. Right. And really bad health issues. Yeah. So they let those things go. And then it was clear sailing. He had to get his, his ice cream machine off the, the black market. <laughs> it got, got kind of caught up in customs, but it, he was able to get that through, pay off the right people. Right. It's great. It's yeah. amazing. As soon as I stopped using unpasteurized milk, mm. like it wasn't a problem. When did yeah. you start using milk? Um, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. He's stepping up his ingredients. You know, for years he used cocoa butter. Yeah, which always made it taste a little weird. But mm. your skin, oh so soft. Oh so soft. It was a non-lactose. Ben, what's the name of the website? Raven. Ravenicecream.com. Ravenicecream.com. You got to try it. It's really, it's very good. It's good. He can make any flavor you want if you pay him enough. Hmm. He'll just go down and take it out of the his competitor's cases. <laughs> it's like, wow, the freezer case. He will need a check before we start. I call this. it backstock. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll get more to, to Raven Ice Cream. We got, we, we'll talk about that all day because it is Ice Cream Sandwich Day. Uh, ben, hey, an angel just got wings uh ben thinks he invented the ice cream sandwich but apparently not the case it's been around a while the pictures from 1900 of people uh eating but they were black and white how do we know well i guess because most ice cream sandwiches don't have the graham crackers on the the top dark cookie on the outsides with the Mm. ice cream in the middle Mm. we will uh we'll get to that plus we have got uh some headlines to get into some of them are crazy we you won't believe one lady we're going to talk about well, we probably won't get to her till the second hour. She Tease went ahead. in for a little surgery, mm. went in as a Southerner, came out speaking. She was British all of a sudden. Yeah, but like, like she sounded like I don't know, almost like, almost like 
a famous British leader. Yeah. Amazing. We'll get to it. It's a crazy story. We'll talk about that. Also, we will be talking about populism versus globalism. Donald Trump and uh, even to that to some effect or point, uh, Bernie Sanders jumped on the populism movement, kind of the bring it back to the U.S., get the jobs back to the U.S., quit growing the world, lock down the doors, batten down the hatches, populism uh, versus globalism. A, a professor is going to be working with us, talking with us about the real impact and data behind a populist versus globalist movement. And Brexit's the example, and Brexit is suffering greatly financially because of the decision to batten down the hatches. So is populism all it's, uh, all it's made up to be? And you got to pay attention to it because shutting down trade agreements won't necessarily make jobs in America. We'll be getting to that in a few moments as well. But first, let's get to the headlines around the country with Sadie Nielsen. Sadie. Thank you, Matt. Lots of interesting things going around the country today. Um, According to a new Gallup poll in the 2016 Republican National Convention, uh, it marked the first time in history in which more voters said they were less likely to vote for a party's nominee after its convention than those who said they were more likely now to do so. 51% of surveyed Americans said they were less likely to vote for Trump after the GOP convention in Cleveland, while only 36% said they were more likely to cast their ballot for him. After last week's Democratic convention in Philadelphia, however, 45% said they were more likely to now vote for Hillary Clinton and 41% said they were less likely. Republican nominee Donald Trump is worried the battle for the White House this fall will be rigged against him. He openly voiced this fear Monday during a town hall event in Columbus, Ohio. Trump said, I'm afraid the election's going to be rigged, I have to be honest. Trump's comments came after he said he felt the Democratic primary had been rigged against Senator Bernie Sanders. While campaigning for Hillary Clinton Monday in Nebraska, billionaire Warren Buffett dared Donald Trump to come forward with his tax returns. You will learn a whole lot more about Donald Trump if he produces his income tax returns, the fourth rich, the world's fourth richest person said. To cheers, Buffett said he would be delighted to meet Trump any place, any time between now and Election Day, and he would bring his tax returns if Trump brought his. And also in Trump news, um, his presidential campaign appealed to Capitol Hill Uh, for help on Monday as his attacks on the Muslim parents of a decorated American soldier killed in Iraq received sharp rebukes from fellow party members. Republican Senator John McCain, a former former prisoner of war and the most prominent veteran in Congress, along with the commander of veterans of foreign wars, joined in the chorus of condemnation of his remarks. And finally, this is an interesting story. A West Virginia Walmart employee, employee said a dog that drove toward her in the parking lot... Oh, sorry. A car that drove toward her in the parking lot had an unlikely driver, a dog. Huh? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The witness said she was standing Friday in front of the Walmart in Wayne when she noticed a car pull out of a parking space and slowly start rolling toward her. The woman thought she said the driver was pulling a prank, but in actual reality, it was just a dog driving the car. Oh, boy. The car crashed into the store at a slow speed and came to a halt. Huh? It was Scooby-Doo. Oh, my heavens. Were they in the van? The mystery machine? Well, Sadie, thanks. The rest of that story? Yeah. A second dog in the passenger seat of the car somehow managed to roll down the window after the crash, the woman said. She <laughs> said the owner of the car was an elderly woman who uh, <laughs> was paid. She was in the store. She left the car running so oh, the sure. dogs weren't overheated right. with the air conditioning on. And, and the dogs are like, we are out of here. <laughs> There's two dogs <laughs> in the car and they're rolling windows down. And How, um, it's great. How crazy is that, though? By the way, the dogs were not injured. What, like, 
The dog's wearing sunglasses. He's got one arm on the wheel, one arm up on the seat. <laughs> He's just looking really groovy. He's like, what? Waiting for Granny to come out. Come on, woman. <laughs> Did you see that dog driving that car? Crazy stuff. We will. Um, we got. We got a million stories like that today. Sure. I mean, well, we usually do most days. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we we got to talk about. Can I just make a, a crazy point? Hillary Rodham Clinton is running. Her campaign is running circles around Donald Trump. That Donald is still dealing with one of her speakers from her convention, and she has way moved on. Mm-hmm. She since has sicked Warren Buffett, Mark Cuban, a bunch of other people after Donald. And she's well down the street while Donald's still chasing a speaker from a week ago. What do you do? He's he's and not organized. In an argument that I don't think he could win. Right. But he he keeps driving as if he's trying to. He He's, he's going to do it one way or another. In fact, uh, today, his... His vice presidential candidate was in Vegas. It was yesterday. Oh, sorry. Yesterday was in Vegas. Mike Pence. Michael Pence. And um, he had there, – there were fans there. Um, I, we'll let you listen to the clip. But basically they were – there was some there was a, hullabaloo around uh, what Donald's doing to the Kazan – the Khan family. Now what you hear, a woman stands up. And starts out with my sons in the Air Force, and she goes on from there. So, Okay, here we go. Hi, what's your name? My name is Catherine, and I am a military mom. My son is currently serving in the U.S. Air Force. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pence. Time and time again, Trump has disrespected our nation's armed forces and veterans, and his disrespect for Mr. Khan and his family is just That's what freedom looks like, and that's what freedom sounds like. That's perfect. you got to respect the question. Yeah. Just a question. Well, now we've gotten to the point where someone brings up the situation that's going on, and Trump has decided to go after a father of a dead soldier who was there to talk about the the, – well, again, obviously the father's against the whole Muslim – Right. Immigration ban. ban that Trump has uh, proposed. And so he brings up that conversation and the, the, you know, my son served in the military. And then now we've, this whole argument's got to the point where we're now booing mothers of service members. <laughs> and, and, and Pence handled it well. He said, uh, Captain Khan that died is a true American hero. Yes. Don't question that. But you can't. But again, this shows you the partisanship, right? You can't even hear the question. Mike Pence has spent quite a bit of time doing this over the last couple of weeks. I wonder if Mike Pence is thinking Trump. Ah, oh, boy. <laughs> Trump says something, and then Mike Pence has to come out with something that tries to sort of smooth it over and walk it back without actually smoothing it over and walking it back. Because you don't want to contradict yeah, the right. head of the ticket, right? But at the same time, he's like, "Oh, we can't say that." And 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 again, what I wonder is, was that question? planted because it's a brilliant question it was how do you as the father of a soldier 
deal with your first chair messing with parents of soldiers. And it's a it was, a, it was like, the perfect question. Are you saying Mike Pence's people may have brought it up so Mike Pence could possibly talk or about Hillary's it. people again okay. another curveball to keep well, this yeah. thing going? And he handled it really well. You still wonder what Donald was thinking, like, oh, Mike, mm-hmm. don't give in to these parents of soldiers. <laughs> This isn't a fight you can win. You can't win Now, it. you can win it, but you just look bad in doing it. So right. there's really no point. He doesn't gain anything no. by having this conversation. And I really respect the con parents for doing what they've done to a degree, except um, con now it's coming out a few things like he's deeply connected with the Hillary Clinton campaign. He's been involved in other things with the campaigns. but And he's, he's now basically – one of the things he said is he's being a, he's being a, he's being harsh. He's Trump is calling Khan harsh in his comments, and then and Khan is saying, "Yeah, but you're in an election, mm-hmm. and I'm a voter, so I have the right to be harsh." So then, if you have the right to be harsh now, what what does what are Donald's rights now with somebody that's more than just a parent of a a parent of a soldier that died? What, what are his rights now to take on Khan? Is he now allowed to bring up his connection with Hillary? You know what I mean? So now all of a sudden the issue is it's turning into a political battle. At first it was just kind of a moral battle that he was killing. But I don't know. There might be a point where Donald should just pivot and go away yeah. like Hillary did. Just move on. With the, the woman that was frustrated because of Benghazi. So – Anyway, Eric Trump, uh, Donald's son, also has a comment. He was on CBS this morning. About the same issue. He called him a hero on, on so many, you know, so many different times. But it's and, same. Again, and again, he's not, he wasn't talking, this isn't a, a Muslim thing. This is, an, this is an ISIS thing. And this is also an, an anti-immigration, anti-Syrian refugee thing coming into the country. Because he doesn't want to see more Americans dead. I mean, my father's a great patriot. He doesn't want to see more Americans dead. And he's seeing what's happening around the country and... Quite frankly, he's he's shaking his head. Hmm. Now that whole interview is about yeah. six minutes long. They ask him, you know, you're going after this family. They had this tragedy, and you know, think, you compared sacrifices. Yeah, the whole compare of, of sacrifices. Has your father sacrificed? And he tried to get into that, then moved away from it really quick because right. he's talking about like building buildings and creating jobs versus losing your child. This this is the problem when you're speaking. Faster than you're thinking. Yeah. And you can, even Eric Trump was having a bit of difficulty trying to express the campaign's message on this topic, which is why you should probably move on. Pivot. It's difficult. Move on because this doesn't help. And even better would be to get your message straight. Go after Hillary. Yeah. Go after any of the politicians. You could have easily said, Captain Khan was was an amazing hero. I'm sad for his parents. I. Their loss is immense. I can't imagine it. And we need to protect our borders. We need to protect yeah, our people. Exactly. And I proposed an idea, and we've got a discussion going. So let's keep the discussion going. There you go. Boom. But Next. They, they didn't say that. They don't say that. <laughs> I've sacrificed a lot, too. I've made millions of dollars and given millions of jobs. Yeah. Um, so Eric Trump's on it. But Donald, don't think that Donald doesn't have a comeback. Mm. He has a great retort, a great response uh, many would think this is his his I think he thinks his exit out of this controversy. Bernie Sanders, people all walked out. You had this mass exit. Nobody shouted. 
And then when they showed Bernie very angry, they're talking about Bernie because he made a bad deal. He should have not made a deal. He would have gone down and done something really important. Once he made that deal, and believe me, he has buyer's remorse. You know, this guy has buyer's remorse. He looked at that and he was so angry when they were talking about him. And his people are angry at him and they should be. If he would have just not done anything, just go home, go to sleep, relax, he would have been a hero. But he made a deal with the devil. She's the devil. He made a deal with the devil. It's true. Lock her up. Lock that devil up. So I guess his out is uh, giving advice, political advice to Bernie. Hmm. And, you know, finally identifying that Hillary is the devil. He's reaching out trying to get those Bernie voters to vote against Hillary. Yeah. Not necessarily for him. That might be too much of an ideological switch for him, but they could vote against Hillary by voting for him. Well, any of those that that don't like parents Hmm. of of military personnel that have died. He's got that vote. He's got that vote. (laughs) Or anybody that is worried about, hey, I, I swear Hillary's the devil. Anybody that was believing that, and he's got that vote now. Hillary Clinton, folks, she's, she's on the path to being the president of the United States. Devil and all. Apparently, Donald can't put together a coherent argument this week for why he should be president. Instead, and it, maybe it's a media conspiracy. Maybe it's, you know, she's got, the, she's got everybody in her pocket. That's what he's saying, but we'll we'll continue the battle as well. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about uh, populist policies. Donald Trump brings it up a lot. Trade agreements, borders. We got to shut this down. Come back to America. Quit worrying about the whole world. We've got a researcher with us that's going to talk about. Uh, you know, Brexit taught us some interesting lessons about why that may not be the best idea. Stick with us, helping you uh, gather the information you need to choose your president. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with Britain uh, Britain voting to exit the European Union at the end of June this year, it's had dramatic international consequences to the markets, to the economic markets. Markets. What's even more concerning is that those who voted to leave acted according to false information and statistics. Jeffrey Cusick, an assistant professor of political science at the City of College, uh, City College of New York, claims that the rise of populist ideas are responsible for political and economic decisions like Brexit. Dr. Cusick uh, joins me now by telephone to discuss an article he wrote in the conversation.com uh, website. Brexit shows economic costs of pursuing populist policies like Trump's. Dr. Cusick, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, Matt. Thank you for having me. You bet. Honored to have you and teach us. We, we need to learn. We, we hear all of the time the word populist thrown about. I guess to get started, educate us. What, what exactly does populism mean? Well, well, you're right that it's it's a word that's commonly said. It's almost become a word like globalization, right. referred to frequently in in politics, and nobody really has a clear sense, or often lacks a clear sense of, uh, of what it actually means. I think that. To put it simply, we're basically just talking about the politics of mass appeal, and that might sound like 
all politics. You're always trying to appeal to as many people as possible if you're seeking office. But more specifically, it's characterized by this idea that the average citizen is some way disadvantaged by elites. Hmm. Or put even more, uh, put even simpler than that, it's anger at the establishment. So, for example, the 2008 uh, banking crisis, the Great Recession, really gave momentum to this idea that, you know, Wall Street in particular was exploiting the working and indeed middle class uh, labor or, or individuals. So it's really this kind of politics of antagonism between, between the classes. And, and you hear that a lot just from the conventions. You can, you can kind of hear from the Bernie Sanders, Sanders movement, from Donald Trump's movement, a lot of kind of middle America, you know, the, the, the middle class, the steel workers, the coal workers, they're losing their jobs, they're being held down by the elites. Well, and that's always been kind of lingering in, in politics in the U.S., and we know this is true of Democrats who are traditionally, you know, aligned with working class labor. That's a core part of their, of the Democrats' constituency. Right. Um, but you're right that we're seeing it on both sides. Um, Joe Biden, you know, after the convention, he even said that one of the real difficulties facing Democrats is that they're losing that traditional alliance. He said on MSNBC that... The Democrats have have ignored their working class base and that they're starting to see see the the adverse effects of that. In particular, what's going on, I think, is that a lot of these voters are moving toward the the Republican side of the aisle, something we haven't seen in, in recent history. It's really only been since the rise of the Tea Party movement or now that the congressmen that are referred to as the Freedom Caucus where we really see a core set of Republican politicians making these appeals to these working class and indeed middle class voters who would have been uh, Democratic supporters, at least in recent history. So there's a fundamental shift going on uh, on both sides of the aisle, but particularly for Republicans. And if anything, I think Trump is a symptom of that, or he represents that. He's not necessarily causing it, per se. He's reflecting that shift. And you, you hear the reflection in phrases about trade agreements that are unfair, that are anti-American trade. And so all of a sudden, it seems like the Republicans were moving, and this is, I guess, what you're saying. The Republicans seem to be moving, even in their agenda, further away from trade, uh, global trade, and and bringing instead the trade back, I guess, trying to strengthen it for the United States. And Democrats seem to be mentioning trade more than ever. Yeah, I really think trade is one of the interesting uh, policies that reveals this kind of new new populist politics. Um, what, what we've seen in the last few presidential elections is is Democratic nominees always, you know, make these appeals to the working class. Uh, base or organized labor by criticizing free trade and and trade agreements. NAFTA being the the highest profile example. So, you know, uh, 2008, Obama goes on the campaign trail. He goes to places like Michigan. He talks about the deteriorating manufacturing base in the U.S. He cites agreements like NAFTA, as, as principal causes of that deterioration, and he promises to renegotiate those agreements. Uh, he doesn't do that. Mm. 
And in fact, a Democratic president, Clinton, is, is the guy chiefly responsible for getting NAFTA passed in right. the first place. So the Democrats have always kind of, you know, struck this delicate balance between criticizing uh, free trade, but then at the end of the day, they ultimately, they ultimately support and enact uh, or ratify these, these trade agreements. Republicans have been less ambiguous in the past. Uh, Republicans basically universally supported the last dozen free trade agreements that the U.S. entered into. Most of them were negotiated and ratified under, under Bush. Uh, in just the last decade. They didn't now, even try to hide it. They just, they just said, we're totally for it. It's pro-business. Absolutely, absolutely. And now what we're seeing is, is, is divisions within the Republican Party. We're seeing important Republican voices like Mitch McConnell, for example, Orrin Hatch, especially Donald Trump, of course, heavily criticizing free trade, heavily criticizing NAFTA, showing staunch opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which is, of course, the pending trade agreement between the U.S. and 11 of its Pacific Rim trade partners. That's really something new for the Republican Party, at least when we look at the last 15 to 20 years of trade politics. You're talking about a Republican Party where... Uh, House members voted in favor of trade agreement ratification 90-91% of the time. (laughs) And now you're getting leaders of the party saying, you know, free trade maybe isn't so great for the U.S. after all. And that's really, really a, a shift in, in their rhetoric. And, and you, you're saying this shift is, is because of kind of a populist mentality, but you also warn us that it might, this populism might be dangerous. Well, I think that there's a couple of, a couple of things going on. So, it's, again, it's one thing to just try to chase down, you know, voters who are feeling increasingly disillusioned with with their economic well-being and the global economy in particular. So for these presidential candidates to say, look, we need to reevaluate America's trade commitments. That's fine. That's and fine. Nobody would deny that free trade has costs. I certainly wouldn't say free trade is unambiguously beneficial. It's how you want to reevaluate those trade uh, commitments and what your policy position really is at the end of the day. Now, for Trump, that's where it becomes, as you say, a bit dangerous. So when he says things like, I don't fear a trade war, I want to raise tariffs to 40 percent, in direct contravention of international trade law, by the way. <laughs> he wants to abandon or shred altogether the WTO commitments, the NAFTA commitments, things of this nature. That's where it becomes dangerous. And that's where populism is, is I'm hesitant to say out of control, but the policy implications of this kind of rhetoric are, aren't clear. Mm. Uh, but the economic costs are clear, and they would be they would be severe. Well, and you even bring up that sometimes the populism just it creates an energy of its own that that maybe has us ignoring certain facts, ignoring certain statistics, laws, existing you know existing consequences that would fall upon the U.S. by doing some of the things Donald's saying. Well, at the end of the day, one of the real dangers here, in my view, is that markets fundamentally at their core, don't like political uncertainty. 
So, you know, Wall Street rightly shared in the blame for 2008 and the Great Recession. But I think people too often assume that global market volatility, that is volatility in trade flows, investment flows, and in all of our individual incomes, people too often assume that that volatility either just kind of falls out of the sky, it's, an, it's a natural inherent part of, of markets, or they think it's a natural extension of irresponsibility by you know, Wall Street or, or global investors or something like that. That's in part true, but market risk is also a product of political uncertainty. And that's what Trump and that's what the new populism is really introducing that I think is, is toxic mm. or, or dangerous. So when you say something like, I'm going to shred the NAFTA agreement, you aren't just talking about whether free trade is good or bad for the average voter. You're talking about a wholesale rejection of international trade law and the rules and regulations that are meant to stabilize markets and to prevent the volatility from which we all suffer. So when he says things about uh, needing to reevaluate or entirely abandon international trade law, he's actually going to generate the perverse consequence of destabilizing hmm. the marketplace further. He's doing the exact opposite of what he's intending to do. <laughs> well, he's doing that in a number of ways. Yeah. We could talk about China, for example, right. and how he continually alienates important U.S. trade partners. And I would argue for a variety of reasons that retreating from the global economy is not a solution to... China's ascension. It's, it's only going to exacerbate what he thinks is yeah, such a... Yeah, it seems like it would make them stronger, right? Yes, absolutely. Interesting. Okay, we've got to take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Cusick. Uh, he is a professor at City College of New York in political science. Is talking to us today about um, populism. And in a, in a way, we got to pay attention, folks, in a big way, because Brexit created a, a similar instability and man, are they paying for it. When we come back, we'll talk about the impact of similar decisions, similar populist ideas driving the Brexit uh, you know, exit and uh, the impact that has had so far on Europe and Great Britain. We'll be right back, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, giving you the information you need to make the decisions in life. We'll be right back. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us, Dr. Jeffrey Cusick. He is a uh, an assistant professor of political science at City College of New York, and also is the director of CCNY's uh, Masters in International Relations program. He wrote an article that uh, fascinated us. Brexit shows economic cost pursuing populist policies like Trump's, and he's here to teach us today about uh, the the importance of understanding um, what's going on in the marketplace when it comes to these policies. It's funny. A, a politician will say something. Donald will say something like, we're going to shred the NAFTA agreement. But the minute they say that, all of the crowds cheer. They, they're they so excited. Uh, middle America is so excited to get jobs back. 
But uh, Dr. Cusick, that doesn't – when he makes that comment, you're saying it, it actually – it sends a shockwave through the rest of the markets of the world showing the instability of this leader and the lack of predictability that these agreements are supposed to you know, create. And crucially, Matt, the, the real cost of that uncertainty then is that you know, markets don't know how to make medium and longer term investments. And, and build reliable, profitable trade relationships. And so when you say, I'm going to shred NAFTA, people think about the thinness of their wallet, they think about their job uncertainty, and that sounds like a good thing. But bigger picture, these trade agreements uh, do more than just boost trade. They also stabilize the marketplace. They take the global economy, or at least they try to, I wouldn't argue that they're perfect, they try to take the global economy out of the Wild West and introduce rules and regulations that, you know, set the boundaries of this of this global economic Hmm. game. Right. Which is what we want. Right. We we don't want a Wild West where a a trade partner could pull back on a deal or could change the rules mid trade after, you know, you set up everything to make it succeed. So, so it's interesting. We've made these NAFTA or these these uh, trade agreements in an effort to create more predictability in the markets, and and Donald's throwing it out in a way that might destabilize it. But talk about the reality of this. This this seems to you're saying paralleled and took place with Brexit. Brexit was promised on a great big promise of you know of populism, shutting down the borders, getting rid of probably immigration, managing immigration better. What what was the financial consequence to Brexit? Well, you're absolutely right that um, just to take one step back for a moment, that the way populism manifested itself in the UK was was a little bit different, but still the same kind of core idea. So there, you're you're absolutely correct to say that immigration played a little bit more of a central role. It's certainly relevant in U.S. politics, but was very central to discussions about the U.K.'s commitment to the to the EU. And so what we've seen is a U.K. that, that voted to, to leave the EU. We haven't seen them actually do it yet, of course. There's, there's ambiguity over whether that process is even going to occur now, let alone right. how it's going to happen. But the economic consequences of this, of this move, I think, have been, have been unambiguously negative. Um, now, there's some debate about this because... You can look at how equities markets are performing around the world, and you can say, yes, they dipped in the immediate aftermath of the referendum, and now stock uh, indices are at all-time highs. It looks like Brexit wasn't such a bad thing, right? Hmm. I think that's a mistake, because the way those equities markets work is that your money can move very quickly. You can adjust to political risk in a second. And what you need to do to look at how investors are really feeling is longer-term kinds of investments. So those are the riskier ones where it's more difficult to move your money and you want to be thinking ahead about, well, what is the political climate really going to do to my my return on my investment? Hmm. So when we do that, we look at uh, property holdings companies in London, Revaluating their portfolios downward. Uh, we look at bond yields at an all-time high, and that might sound like good news. Bond yields are at a 
uh, sorry, all-time low. Sorry, all-time low. I misspoke there. Yeah. Uh, and, and you might think, well, that sounds like good news because more people are investing in, in the government. That's what, what buying bonds is, is doing. But what that really means is that investors are taking, you know, the safer bet, investing in these longer-term government bonds rather than reinvesting in the economy. So consumption is down, investment is down, more people are looking for the safer kind of strategy, which is doing things like buying UK government bonds. Hmm. So demand is high, yields are low, and that's that's actually bad news, not good news for, for growth. And, and about $2 trillion U.S. dollars was lopped off of the value of global markets. That's absolutely right. And, and again, the stock markets have largely rebounded and, and then some. I mean, uh, the FTSE 100 is, is higher than it was prior to, or it has been in the last few weeks, higher than it was prior to the Brexit vote. But again, I think that the stock indices are slightly misleading, primarily because that, you know, that footloose capital, some people call it, can move so quickly that that's not really representative of how people are thinking longer term about the health of these markets. Mm. So in a way, then, we, when we hear the rhetoric, what, what are we to do? How, how do we not, you know, if you're somebody in Iowa, in Ohio, that that has lost your job, um, it's been, you know, exported to some other country to make what you were making. How do you not get just sucked into the rhetoric and and just be a go for the populist approach? Well, I mean, that's a that's a great question. And 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 I have to emphasize again that, you know, no, no one would argue that these criticisms of free trade are entirely incorrect. And, and I certainly wouldn't argue that that free trade is costless and that our free trade ag- agreements are, are unambiguously a good thing. And mm. they clearly have a downside. What's interesting about the way the public responds to these populist appeals is that most of the public opinion data on, on trade is either conflicting or it ultimately reveals that people just don't have consistent, strongly held preferences over free trade as a policy issue. So, for example, there's really interesting work on public opinion that shows that if I, if I know your view about abortion or gun control, stem cell research, whatever, if I know your opinion about one of these kind of social issues, then I can perfectly predict your opinion or, you know, with yeah. high reliability, predict your opinion about a wide variety of other issues. So people generally have strongly held, consistent, coherent views about social politics. Free trade is an exception to that. We're not very good at predicting someone's attitude about free trade, and it's not obvious that people hold very strongly to those views even when they self-report them. So in North Carolina, there was some survey research done, and you're talking about a state where three, four hundred thousand manufacturing you know, textiles, furniture, making jobs were lost after NAFTA, you'd think that that state would be the place where people have strong views about free trade, and they really don't. The evidence suggests that people don't have consistent views. So what's the point to bringing this all up? It's that free trade is a really tricky public opinion issue. Right. It's, not, it's not clear that, um, that individuals... Uh, 
are politically active around this issue. At the end of the day, they were, they're more likely to vote on somebody who feels the same way about abortion as they do or feels the same way about gun control as they do. Um, so I'm not sure if this is getting at no, what yeah. you're asking. It's more it's complicated, it sounds like. the public opinion uh, concern. Well, it, it, I think it's – I wonder, too, if we're not sometimes just lazy voters <laughs> Because this is a complicated issue. And, to, I mean, they don't even bring up TPP. I mean, they do, but only if you're listening for it. They, they instead just kind of blanket in in the concept of trade agreements. But this is a complicated issue. It's like talking about the deficit. And right. people don't like it. They, they don't like certain situations or certain things we're talking about. But they also don't necessarily – maybe know the difference or have researched it. So I think what you're bringing up is, is a good point, too, to just make sure that we don't, we don't make a mistake by just assuming the rhetoric is all true. We need to get our brains involved. Uh, well, but, and of course we know that economic models oversimplify the adjustment costs mm. that come with trade liberalization. So yeah. no one wants to look a textiles worker in the eye in North Carolina and say, yes, you've lost your job, but we're generating export jobs somewhere <laughs> right, else. Right? Right. That's a real political difficulty, yep. and no one's naive about that. Um, but when we do look big picture at what's going on with the economy, we see much more uh, a much more valid debate, for example, about what NAFTA's costs and benefits have really been. So some people say, well, look, we've lost hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of manufacturing jobs in these core import-competing industries, and there's been all this outsourcing. Yeah. But, the, but again, looking bigger picture, we've generated many, many export-oriented jobs. We're a service-based economy primarily, and we've, it's difficult to measure growth in that sector, so that's commonly left out of the debate. So there are all these moving parts that do make it difficult. I hesitate yeah. to cast doubt yeah. on the sophistication of the American voter. No, right. It's, I, I uh, guess, and I guess when we, when we think about it, too, and we've got to go, Jeff, um, it's, it, it's a complicated issue, and it might be advantageous for certain people to keep it even more complicated and we start looking at parts instead of holes. Um, anyway, interesting discussion with Dr. Jeffrey Cusick from City College of New York. We'll take a break. Come right back. Wrap up this first hour of the show. Welcome back, friends, uh, to the show. Would you believe it if I told you that uh, this the nomination process that we just went through, would you believe that only 9% of Americans chose Trump and Clinton as the nominees? Only 9%. Not 50%. You hear all these numbers thrown around, right? Well, hold on. Donald Trump is at 45%. Well, 9% of America has spoken. And that, that 9%... It's how we got our nominations. There's a great article we will post on our Twitter page that comes out of um, the New York Times. Just to show you the numbers, Here, here's basically the breakdown of numbers. The United States is home to 324 million people, right? 324 million. 103 million of those 324 are children, non-citizens, or ineligible felons, much like Ben. So 103 of the 324 can't even vote. 
not allowed to vote, not going to vote. 88 million who, people who are eligible adults do not vote at all. So 88 million of the 324, not even interested in voting, not, not voting, okay, in a general election. An additional 73 million of the 324 did not vote in the primaries this year, but are most likely going to vote in the general election. So another 73 million didn't vote in primaries, but will probably vote in the general, which means the remaining 60 million people uh, in the country voted in the primaries, about 30 million each for Republicans and Democrats. Weird, huh? And of those, only nine, only uh, 14% of the eligible adults, 9% of the whole nation voted for either Mr. Trump or Mrs. Clinton. The rest voted for Bernie Sanders or the other 16 candidates in the Republican side. 9%. You got the numbers? But everybody apparently has a right to complain. <laughs> so when, when President Clinton says, don't boo, just vote, that's what he means. You better get your game on, folks. This is a serious deal, and only 9% of the people got the, got the votes of, for Trump and Clinton. By the way, the, the rest don't feel like they're being heard. The rest that voted in the primaries, at least. The rest maybe shouldn't be heard if they're not going to get out and vote. We'll take a break, folks. Come check out our Twitter page, at Dr. Matt Show. You can see that uh, New York Times article. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number two of the program. Boy, have we got a show for you. We have, we have a miracle story. You won't believe this. And uh, we have audio uh, that will just blow your mind. And video. It's actually video. It's a video of a woman had some surgery on her mouth, her jaw. And when she woke up, a Texas woman, when she woke up, she woke up speaking completely differently. I I don't want to give it away, but it'll blow your mind. (laughs) It blew mine, and we have some great video slash audio that we're going to be playing for you about that. Uh, Also today, uh, we'll be speaking on the topic of keeping your employees from quitting, your most talented employees. We're going through this right now with Ben. Ben decided to quit. Are you calling me one of your most talented employees, Matt? No. I I will accept it. But you're quitting, and we're losing you. Oh, okay. Um, He's valuing a vacation and his education over the job. And how right. do you change that yeah. mindset? I don't exactly. Know. No, exactly. And is it going to work out for him? You know, probably not. Failure, all I see. But, you know, he has to learn from his own mistakes. He's a big boy. So we will be learning from um, a, an expert on how to actually keep your most talented employees from quitting. 
It's an article that was in Inc. Magazine, um, The Simple Strategy to Keeping Your Most Talented Employees from Quitting. And, and we're going to get in-depth, give you the tools you need. So if you're a leader, a boss, uh, you know, a manager, how to, how to keep those people around. Or if you're an employee. Or if you're an employee. And, and your boss doesn't seem to care if you quit. Maybe that's a maybe concern for you. Maybe this will incentivize you. Like, <laughs> why, why is everybody celebrating? Why is that? Yeah, I was surprised about that. Like well, when Ben yeah. told me he quit. It's a reason to have a party. What was weird is right when Ben said he's quitting, did you, did you remember we immediately, what, the next day we had someone hired? We're it's like, crazy. okay, yeah. Actually, we had two people it's hired. It's like you had him on the docket already. It's actually, yeah. I think what it was is you read the tea leaves. And then you changed your ringtone to celebration. Yeah, do you remember that? By cooling the gang. It's like, really? That's interesting. And you remember we wouldn't let him in my office anymore? Well, yeah. Access. Yeah. For employees only. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. Team members. We're going to miss Ben. Not very team member. Who are we going to bug when Ben's gone? We'll figure it out. Sadie. They'll yeah. be a new target. We're going Sadie. after Sadie. Crush her! Yeah. No, we won't. We don't need to always chase somebody. Some people just are easy targets. So we'll get to all of this fun, folks, uh, plus the headlines, of course. And who better to give us the headlines around the country than Sadie Nielsen? Sadie, what's up? I appreciate that, Matt. Um, lots of interesting things going along around the world today. Um, in Trump news, um, Donald Trump suggested that alleged victims of sexual harassment by former Fox News chief Roger Ailes should have just left the network. I would like to think she would find another career or find another company if that was the case, Trump assumed, when asked what would happen if his daughter Ivanka was in a similar situation. Ailes resigned from Fox News almost two weeks ago after former anchor Gretchen Carlson filed a lawsuit alleging repeated sexual harassment and a subsequent investigation by 21st Century Fox uh, reportedly found more female employees who've experienced such behavior. All pregnant women in the U.S. should be tested for exposure to the Zika virus, the Centers for Disease Control said Monday. The development comes on the same day as Florida Governor Rick Scott announced more than 10 people were infected by the virus through mosquitoes. Florida officials have advised pregnant women to stay away from Windward neighborhood in Miami. Zika can spread through sexual contact in addition to mosquitoes in warm climates. The Florida cases are the first to be contracted on the U.S. mainland. On Monday, lawyers for Dylan Roof filed a challenge to the federal death penalty. Roof is accused of killing nine people in a shooting spree at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, last June. In the motion, the defense attorneys argued the federal death penalty itself, which the Justice Department is seeking against Roof, constitutes a legally prohibited, arbitrary, cruel, and unusual punishment prohibited by both the Fifth and Eighth Amendments. And finally... Um, A Florida man was recently arrested when police found suspected crystal meth on the floorboard of his car. An officer followed the man out of a 7-Eleven store for suspected drug activity and pulled over 64-year-old Daniel Rushing. The officer took note of a rock-like substance on the floorboard where his feet were when she opened the door. He told her it was donut glaze. Other (laughs) officers came and swore it was crystal meth. Donut glaze. Donut glaze. Uh, They conducted two roadside tests that came back positive for illegal substances and then proceeded to take Rushing to the county jail on a meth possession charge, strip strip search him for about 10 hours, and release him on $2,500 bail. They strip searched him for 10 hours? 10 hours. What were they looking for? Um, But the charges were dropped. Okay. I've only been strip searched. Strip searched for seven hours. You thought you broke the record, but this guy broke the record. But this was just for donut glaze. It actually was donut glaze. 
Oh, it wasn't actually meth. Maybe that's what it was. Well, mine hey, was justified. Nobody knows donuts better than Pete. You know, the joke is, shouldn't the cops be able to identify a donut? They should. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. It's unfounded. He totally, went to jail but, yeah. and was strip searched for a long time um, in order to figure out that that's just donut glaze. You'd think that you'd think that they would have it wouldn't have passed the test, but apparently it, it, it indicated on the drug test. Yeah, maybe it was meth donut glaze. Billy, lick it. Secret ingredient. Donuts. Oh, these donuts are really good. Going to make the donuts. Wow. Yeah. That's a bad day. Yeah. The guy is suing, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. It also tells you you probably need to vacuum out your car. Probably. Who knows what's on the floor of your car? Well, apparently meth and donut glaze. <laughs> there it is. Poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah, I don't know if fully if the guy's innocent. In that situation, they found yeah. donut glaze. Yeah. But they also found something else, but the test came back on a second run through mm-hmm. as negative so i don't know if that means there was something in the car at one point and now it's not there Maybe or did they just mess up i don't remnants know. of a really great party apparently for some people i, I don't know yeah yeah but that's it, why i quit eating donuts it did happen in florida of course it did of course it did okay we have to get to the story about the texas woman mm. the, this it's almost unbelievable and when you watch the video that we have because this is the show where we bring you video mm-hmm. one of the only radio programs that searches out video. That's how, that's how distinct we are. A woman, a Texas woman, goes in to have jaw surgery. Okay? But when she's done, she comes out with a British accent. Hmm. A rare neurological disorder that has the mother of three sounding more like a character from Downton Abbey. Six months ago, Lisa Alamio underwent jaw surgery to correct an overbite resulting in nerve damage that led to a condition known as foreign accent syndrome. It's a real syndrome. And now as she chats, uh, sounding like a Brit. We have audio of, um, of Lisa Alamia before the surgery. This is what she sounded like before. Uh, how can I make your stay more comfortable? Actually, I'm very comfortable with my body. I'm very comfortable with being a woman. I always have been. Okay. She's very comfortable. She's being interviewed. Yeah. And some would think, man, that woman sounds familiar. Right. No, that's just every Southerner. Okay. (laughs) Pre-surgery, that's what she sounded like. Post-surgery, though. So this is a conversation with her and her doctor. This is a video. Just to give some preface. This is the doctor coming in after the surgery trying to, you know, just figure out what happened, basically. So so he's asking questions. Uh, Lisa, I'm Dr. Scholes. I'm your attending physician. Uh, Do you have any sensitivity, Lisa? Pangs and toils are not beyond our endurance. Well, as long as we have faith in our cause, dramatic. And, uh, did, and did her voice drop too? Apparently, <laughs> salvation will not be denied us. Wow. And, wow. And, and have you been sleeping well? We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. Huh? Lisa, are huh. you experiencing dryness of mouth? This struggle was protracted and fierce. Suddenly, the scene is cleared. The crash and thunder, and for the moment, sounds noble. For the moment, died away. Lisa, are you experiencing any abnormal swelling? Tyranny and uh, system 
which have bitten deep and will fester and inflame Ugh. not only in the naughty body but in the naughty mind wow uh, now lisa we'll be releasing you here uh, probably in the next hour men will still say this was their finest hour oh that's that quote sounds familiar hmm I feel bad for her. She sounded. Was she hooked up to our heart monitor? Yeah. Why? Well, because her voice if changed. She went she wasn't in sounding die. like Dolly and came out sounding like Winston. They had to do tests on her. Okay, you gotta, it just seemed. And that's a weird hmm. medical overexpense there, but okay. Well, it, I guess it's one thing to come out sounding like somebody different, but she actually used completely different words and. Yeah. I think that's an upgrade, personally. And was she in the same room? Because it sounded like she was on the phone. Yeah. No, she She actually – no, that's just – it's a stereo issue. Okay. That, part of the surgery. Yeah, the reporter that went there kind of had bad audio. And, and so. Is it ethical to record a doctor-patient conversation like that? Isn't there like yeah. HIPAA rules? And, there are. There are a lot of rules. Um, did, we, did we violate something in airing probably, that audio? Okay. Probably. Huh. We have I lawyers. Figured, yeah. I'm gone in a week. Doesn't matter that much. And the lawyers need something to do here at BYU Radio. So, you know what? She used a lot of Winston Churchill quotes. She did. Wonder why? Is that a byproduct? Yeah, of probably, the surgery. I think or? that's the that's the anesthesia. So it's not just the accent. You no. start you start quoting notable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brits. Ask not. Yeah, you could do that. You know, someday I'll sound like a Kennedy. Okay. Hmm. That's mm. why I don't get surgery. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want any. It could change your entire personality. Yeah. You don't know. One time I, um, I I can't remember if I dreamed this or if it happened, but I had a surgery on my arm and I could throw like a million miles an hour. It's not true. That's a Disney movie. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Are you nice, sure? Nice try though. <laughs> I, I told you I couldn't remember if it was me. Yeah. It's just, it was just a movie. You're fine. Yeah. I get those mixed up too. Sometimes I want to... You know, hold people by their foot off of buildings and tell them I'm Batman, but I don't Alert do that. Alert nerd. You didn't have to go to that. Well, I'm just saying there's times when I look at those movies and go, wow, that could be me. Nerd alert! Interesting. Or I go Terry Smash and, you know. Terry Smash! Throw stuff nerd! around. That's just, that's not how it works. You, <laughs> I just brought off, I just brought up an issue yeah. from a Disney movie years right. ago. Absolutely. And you went all... I brought up two other movies. Yeah. Did you hear about the guy that got in trouble for having a Batman-style throwing star? Yes. We talked about that last week. And he he threw the star and it stuck in the front of the police officer that was chasing him. Like in the car or SUV or whatever they were pursuing him. Yeah. Yeah. He had a Batman-style ninja star. Otherwise known as a Batarang. Is that more effective than a regular ninja star? I think it'd be a lot more difficult to throw since the shape of a bat isn't round like a star, so it's hard to Well, I read a a study that six out of seven ninjas Mm. said they don't like that star. I could see how that could be the case. Because it's not – I mean, sorry, not star, Batarang. Batarang. You know what was weird is I'm looking at the article. Yes. And have read it. Yes. And I still couldn't have remembered the word batarang. Come on. And you, without even look, having looked at it for a week, just brought it up in the conversation. You have officially 
Well, I watched reach the level of nerddom. No, I just I watched these shows and I uh, have video games where you're Batman and you're throwing these things at people and it doesn't really do anything other than annoy them, but it's still fun. Yeah. You know, I just I, know, I read books. No, you don't. I do. I I read books too. Apparently not. <laughs> I do. Just bat books. No. Historical books. About bats? No. Currently, the Wright Brothers. I've told you oh, that's this. Right. You're still reading that book? I, it takes me a while. Well, yeah, because you're playing Batman <laughs> well, all the time. I, I have diverse interests. Whatever. <laughs> you say that. You don't mean it. See, um, folks, that's what we like to do on the show is we, we, we love everyone. Uh, from nerd geeks that love batarangs to, you know, health risks that make their own ice cream. Some of them we love less. We love them all equally. We tolerate a few differently. But that's why we're losing a few folks, because our next guest is going to be talking about how to keep your most talented employees. And we apparently must not be able to do that because Ben's slipping right through our fingers. So you are calling me one of your most talented employees. Actually, I don't think I use that phrase. No. Well, you're saying we're losing one of them. We're losing an employee. Matt, you can just say it. We're losing a boy that I raised from a pup. It makes me sad. Except insurance costs are going to drop like crazy because our liability is disappearing. Anywho, we'll take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to get into it. Working with people, how to keep your most talented employees from quitting. This may be one you're going to want to send to your boss. So listen up. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, leadership over the last several decades has been about creating a vision and strategy that others can see and follow. Many organizations have made dramatic improvements in office working conditions, but a disconnect still remains. Robin Camarote, a communication strategy consultant, is online with us this morning to talk a little bit more about how businesses can win over their employees' loyalty and keep the most talented workers in the workplace. Uh, uh, Robin Camaro, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Matt. It's good to be here. Great to have you on board and have you teaching us about um, loyalty. It's it's an interesting thing. It, is, it, is it a generational thing? Why are we less loyal today than we used to be? Well, I, I don't think so, but I do think that people have more options. And so, you know, what... Um, you know, used to be about kind of a, a relationship with your direct manager and kind of the team that you're working with has really expanded. And, and, and maybe there are some generational um, aspects to this, but I think people are looking for something more out of their work and, and looking for, for purpose and kind of a, um, you know, a sense of intention when they go to work. And so I, I do think that's changed in, you know, the last, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years. And that's got to be expensive, right? Replacing an employee, it seems like it would be much easier to just keep them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, the data shows that I think that it costs, um, you know, almost twice the salary um, over over time to replace um, an employee. So, you know, employers and big companies are much better off to keep their uh, to, to keep their talent happy and to keep them engaged. And, 
and, you know, and prevent that kind of turn, you know, prevent the kind of turnover that happens just because people are um, dissatisfied with, you know, with their work. And there are so many kind of avoidable problems that, you know, companies could address to really reduce that turnover. Talk to us about those. What, what are some of the things that drive employees away? Well, you know, I, I think in my experience, it's really kind of a lack of flexibility and autonomy in your work. You know, so when you go to work and you really don't have much say in the tasks that you're doing or the priority order or who you're doing them with, you know, over time, I think that really begins to wear on you. And, and you know, as professionals, especially as you kind of grow and advance in your career, you want to have more say. And I think that some employers kind of get into a mindset that, you know, this ownership mindset that the staff is there and they, they own them. And, and that's really problematic because, uh, because of course, we, you know, there's no such thing as indentured servitude anymore. We don't own our employees. And any efforts that you can make to kind of um, build up that autonomy and flexibility in your employees' day um, makes them all the happier. It's so true. Yeah, darn it. So, we, so let me get that straight. Indentured servitude gone. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I heard you joking with Matt before. Yeah. Excuse me, with Ben before. Ben. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know what? We've been. I, I'm sad that he's hearing this now because he's about to leave us, and now we now we kind of know why because <laughs> we've treated him like a servant. Talk to us um, uh, about this. You brought up these freedoms, right? Like life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. This freedom matters a lot. I know they've talked about it with millennials that maybe having a good life is is more important than having a, a really wealthy life. Yeah, you know, and I think there's balance. And, and one of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, that, you know, millennials are often cited as the generation that's kind of leading the charge in terms of having purpose-driven work. Um, but the reality is that's what we all want. I'm a Gen Xer myself, and, and that's certainly what I want out of my work. And I know a lot of other um, you know, people from older generations, and that's what they want, too. So we can thank the millennials for kind of bringing this issue to the forefront, but it is something that we're all interested in. It's like a human need, uh, right? They, all yeah. humans would want it. It's just maybe many of us didn't think we could ask for it. Yeah, I think so. You know, and, um, you know, certainly there is something to be said for job security. I mean, to, you know, for all of the responsibilities that we have and being able to, um, you know, kind of meet those obligations and those responsibilities with certainty. I mean, that is really important. But one thing I see is that, you know, we've been in this down economy for, you know, several years now, and some employers kind of get into this mindset where they know people don't want to leave or they, they fear leaving or looking for other work because they're afraid that there won't be something else out there. And in some cases, employers really exploit that, that down economy and, and kind of get into these patterns of not you know, not treating employee, you know, employees very well. And it, and it gets to problem because as soon as that, it, you know, as soon as um, employees have other options, if you're working in that kind of environment, they will take them and they will leave. Right. And so I think that it makes so much sense now for, um, for all employers to just, you know, really treat people, um, you know, with respect. And anytime there's an opportunity to kind of give them some of that um, ability to make decisions about their day and what they're working on and, and um, to, to um, allow that to happen. It's it's a weird idea that even if I could oppress you and make you afraid and that would get you to stay, it still wouldn't mean you'd be as valuable for me as somebody that isn't oppressed and isn't afraid and is engaged like you're talking about. I, so it's it's almost like we have to decide the means we want to we want to use to get people to stay with us either empower them and and excite them and energize them and let them be passionate about what they want to do in the business with us or intimidate them scare them you know it's we have a choice 
Yeah, yeah, we do. And, you know, I'm working with a client right now who um, she is a couple years into her career and she kind of was looking around the company for what was next and um, identified what seemed to be a great opportunity, something that was really going to stretch her skills and be good for her and uh, and allow her to kind of stay with the company. And so when she approached her um, supervisor about getting his support to, to make the move, he turned her down. And she, of course, was incredibly disappointed. Um, and, you know, and in some ways it doesn't surprise me. She's very talented and an incredibly hard worker. And so, it, you know, it struck me like I could kind of understand where the supervisor is coming from. Obviously, you don't want to lose, you know, your best employee to have them go work for another manager. But it also seemed to me to be incredibly short-sighted because what's going to happen is, you know, so she's, she's complied, you know, she's still in her same job. But I can guarantee the next time a good opportunity comes along, she's going to leave. And it's right. probably not going to be an internal move. It's probably going to be an external move because she's so frustrated. Oh, it's so true. And uh, in a day and age where technology is there, you have the tools, you have abilities to, to actually create jobs that maybe are more meaningful and more aligned to how we live and want to live. This is the day, I guess, as a manager, you need to start. And opening up your own mind and, and, and allowing certain things to at least be tried. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, and I think what's true uh, for managers and kind of how they, in, you know, interact with their employees is this, you know, has to be true for them as well. So, you know, I hope that um, managers out there are kind of getting ideas of things that inspire them and things that they can in turn talk to their their leadership and their managers about so that it's a cycle. And, and you know, for that reason, I think that it really kind of starts at the top and the most, you know, CEO, the most senior leadership can really set the tone um, for kind of their immediate circle and then it kind of flows, flows from there. What would you suggest for the bosses um, to kind of get this discussion going and this openness out there. I mean, I can almost see that they're afraid to suggest allow, or allow certain things. If I allow it with one person because it, I trust that person, I work with that person, I, I feel obligated to have to do it for the next person, even if I don't have the same level of trust. Yeah, I think that's that's a real problem, and I, you know, and I, you know, I kind of can um, can sympathize with managers there because all employees are different and have kind of different capabilities, and um, I think that it starts with setting um, setting expectations for all employees and building kind of a reputation as a manager that holds everybody accountable to to those expectations. So you kind of have to start there, but if you want to kind of take this to the next level and kind of figure out what. Um, you know, what individual employees, what new tasks they can take on or new opportunities. I think that it starts with a, you know, a conversation with everybody that says, you know, hey, you know, I'm really, I'm really interested in seeing what more we can do together for our common goal. It always has to be grounded in something that's ultimately good for the business. It can't, it can't be just, you know, something whimsical that an employee wants to do. It really has to be grounded in, in something that makes sense for the mission and, or for the business. Yeah, and, and win-win. So it's, it's good for both of us. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. if one is losing, right, it's it probably won't work long term. Right. It's just un- unsustainable. So, you know, so I, I would, you know, in um in a meeting and maybe it starts with a small group and then kind of expands out from there. But in a meeting, just, you know, opening up and saying, hey, I'm very much open to new ideas. Let's, you know, if you have things that you think are going to make our process work better or, you know, we're going to reach more customers or whatever we're going to do, um, bring them to me and let's figure out how we can make them work. And so, um it doesn't mean so then you know ideas will start you know you know coming in it doesn't mean that you have to accept everything as a manager 
Um, I think the obligation is to listen and try to understand kind of what people want to do. Um, you know, picking a couple that you think are workable and that you can support as a manager. And what really gets people excited is when you can follow through and add some resources to it. So either, um, you know, freeing up some of the employees' time to focus on it or even giving some, them some investment money to, uh, to pursue it. That's a, yeah, that's huge, right? Because I guess it increases the likelihood it's actually going to happen now. Now it's legit. Right. Right, right. One of the things you mentioned in your article is about um, kind of a leadership issue that you you might need to circle your leaders, those, you know, in the top positions, and make sure that they lose the superiority trap and become more inclusive. What what do you mean by that? Well, I think that... um you know, as people ascend in an organization, we we tend to kind of gravitate towards our peer group, you know, or and in some cases kind of are trained to manage up and keep our bosses happy. And I think over time what happens is that there's these kind of echelons and, and the most senior group can, ad- you know, adopt this kind of attitude that it's us versus them within the organization. And to me, this is just a, a huge um, red flag because um, then the the, the problem is then that the senior leadership is really disconnected from the experience that employees are having kind of maybe day to day, either with clients and customers or with each other. And it, it makes them as, you know, not in as good of a position to kind of make decisions and, and run the business as well. So there's a real practical business problem when that happens. Um, but it's also just, you know, not, not the best way to kind of interact with, with people. And so I think that really um, keeping, you know, leaders can hold each other accountable and hold themselves accountable to saying, you know, every time that we want to kind of close the door, have a conversation, make a decision without including the employees that this is going to impact, we need to rethink that and find ways to include people, whether it's, you know, having a representative or having more open meetings or, or attending more staff meetings or whatever it is, just um, finding ways to interact with staff that really start to break down some of those walls. Yeah, and it seems like making it almost flatter. So, so it's yeah more of a team atmosphere. Yeah, I I, th- I think that that's ultimately more productive. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break. We're speaking with uh, Robin Camerote, who uh, is the author of of this article, "The Simple Strategy to Keeping Your Most Talented Employees from Quitting," which is featured in Inc. Magazine. We'll take a break again. You can go check out Robin's website. RobinCamerote.com, C-A-M-A-R-O-T-E, Camerote.com. We'll continue the discussion in just a minute. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Are you noticing that uh, maybe your leader doesn't know how to keep you interested? Uh, maybe they're not allowing you or not setting up conditions where you can thrive in your organization. Robin Camerote joins us. She is the author of an article that we found in Inc. Magazine, How to Keep Your Most Talented Employees from Quitting. And she's walking us through some of her lessons as a communications coach and a consultant to help us with that. Robin Camero, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Dr. Matt. This is fun and I think necessary. So it's interesting as a as an employee, I how do I get my leader? I, do I just send them your article? 
How do I get the leader <laughs> to start to pick up these ideas if if they're not one who naturally wants to lead in this more open way? Uh, well, that <laughs> that might be uh, more direct, I think, than a lot of people want to go. But of course, it depends <laughs> on the relationship that you yeah. have with your boss. So that could be one strategy. Um, I know I think the other thing is that um, as, a, as an employee, you want to get to the place where you have some regular contact with your boss. And I realize this is um, not the case for, for a lot of people. But if you can kind of figure out a way to get on their calendar, whether, you know, it's on a monthly basis or, you know, every other month or something like that, and just get some dedicated time to sit down and talk to them just to bu- start building that relationship because it's a lot easier to have conversations about what you're happy about, what's frustrating, or, you know, other kinds of improvements you want to offer in the office if you're starting from a place where you already have a solid relationship. So I think that's a good place to start. Absolutely. Um, And if you have that set time, you always can do accountability and follow-up, so you you can always show them how well you're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think the thing you don't want to do necessarily is kind of gather a peer group or, you know, some other employees together and kind of gossip or, yeah. um, you know, For, I, I yeah, form a union over a lot of bosses. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> right. that tends not to go over really well. So I think, you know, if you can uh, approach people, you know, in private when, when, you know, their defenses are down and really talk about kind of how it's impacting you. And if you can re- always kind of bring it back to how you're either going to help your boss or you're going to help the business by, you know, by doing something then I think that, you know, most bosses are going to be open to listening to that. It seems like sometimes the mere fact, if you're, if you're in a large, really large organization, it's, you know, it's a huge ship. It's like an aircraft carrier, and you're just some lowly worker 12 stories down that, that wants to try to change this, the movement of this ship. Does bureaucracy tend to then weigh heavy on the ability for for managers to change these systems? You know, I think that it does in our perception, but not in our reality. And and what has just become so abundantly clear to me over the last couple of years, I, I came from a very large organization, and it, sometimes I, I kind of felt empowered to make changes, and a lot of times I didn't. But what's What's like what it, what's really become clear to me is that we all have so much more power and influence than we ever use, and so never underestimate your ability to make change to your immediate environment and then even beyond. And so it all has to start with kind of a an idea of what you want to fix, so kind of a clear vision for what you know what's broken, an idea for how it can be better, and the willingness to um, be part of the solution to actually roll up your sleeves and kind of work on it. And so I think if you start those conversations with, even if it's just, you know, another middle manager that then, you know, it resonates and they can bring it up from there, you know, I, I just, I would encourage everybody, just don't underestimate yourself and in, in how much change you can have in your in your business. Well, because every manager is a person as well, right? So we we're promoting yeah. somebody up the line. It's just... We as managers, when we get to those positions, I guess we need to make sure we do become more creative as a manager. Yeah, I, I think so, and it kind of goes back to what you mentioned at the top of the, at the top of the segment. It's just you know, not only is it the right thing to do, it's incredibly expensive to kind of cycle through employees. And so, if you're having a problem with kind of higher than average turnover, I think it's worth looking at. You know, why is that happening, and is there a way that people can be more engaged so that you can um, keep them longer? Give us some examples of how managers that you've worked with were able to, you know, foster this life, liberty, pursuit of happiness mentality with their employees. Well, one kind of a, more from my personal experience and kind of growing up 
uh, professionally in a consulting environment is that the attitude was that every person was kind of the owner of their business within the business. And I think this is a really powerful tool that a lot of organizations can use to kind of foster this sense of ownership. And, um, you know, really um, having people think about their work as not just kind of a, a cog in the wheel, but instead an owner in the business. And so, you know, how they would do that, it would just be, you know, you know, everyone was um, set, set individual goals that kind of rolled up to the broader organization goals were hold, held accountable for those and encouraged and kind of supported in their efforts to kind of grow the business and, um, you know, expand services to clients and that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of ways that um, managers can help foster that sense of ownership. Do you have to pay for the ownership? Like um, <laughs> one of the things I, I can see they do is they want your ideas. They want you to feel like you're an owner. But they also – sometimes you're kept in your place. Sometimes you're silenced or you, you're you not necessarily compensated. You go make a – really bring a really incredible idea to the game, but you're not compensated like everyone else up the line, and that's discouraging. Yeah, it, it can be. Um, but it's part of – you know, it's kind of part of the deal that you accept when you work for these co- – you know, for, for any organization that – you're going to be part of a team that is kind of building, growing that business. The one thing, um, you know, and, and in turn, you're also shielded from a lot of the risk, right? Right. So, um, so I think employees have to kind of keep that in mind is that you might be a little frustrated that you didn't quite get the bonus that correlated to kind of the work that you brought in or something like that, but also keep in mind that you also, you know, that you, your paycheck was going to continue regardless of what happened there. So there's a, there is uh, some security there. And so keeping that in mind and also just knowing that I, you know, I feel like you can't play the short game. I think that always have to kind of keep in mind that this is you have a long career and that you're constantly playing to if you're playing to the betterment of the business and, and kind of the overall team, then that's ultimately going to benefit you. And not to get too hung up on kind of the the, the metrics of kind of who who did what. Right. Well, and especially if you see that in time you to move, you get opportunities, you have other you know, movement in your career because of your good work, that it's not – you're not permanently stuck and your – you know, your contributions aren't permanently forgotten. They actually right. float you up. Right, right. Yeah, I, yeah. And I think, yeah, just um, there's no better way to get positive attention from your leadership to, than to, like, bring an idea, be willing to execute it and have it pulled off successfully. You know, even if it's not your – name and lines at the end of the day, there's people notice that. Yeah. And kind of being able to do that time and time again is a fantastic way to grow your career. Yeah, you can't beat top performance, right? If you're a right, top performer, right. you'd seem to have the most freedom. I mean, at yeah. least I, I, idealistically, you should. Um, talk about what what do I do as a manager when I need to give feedback uh, you know, to somebody, uh, maybe to gently to critique what they de- they've done or to to you know give them the feedback they need without destroying their confidence. Yeah, well this is this is tricky and it's one of the managerial skills that I think um that it's so important especially for kind of new managers that are new to their role but you know I think you know there's kind of two types of employee behaviors so there's there's the kind that is illegal and dangerous and that has to be stopped immediately. Yeah, that's so been. You know, okay, one, we got that. Yeah. <laughs> totally <laughs> been. <bad>. Yeah. <laughs> So, but there's the other kind that, you know, somebody's falling short of expectations in some way, and that's usually, that's more often the case. So I think that it, it's, there's a couple of things to keep in mind is one, two, um, you always have to start from 
from asking the question. You know, so sitting people down again in private, kind of asking a little bit just to have you know understand their point of view and their context, because you likely don't have all of the information as a manager. So so getting their point of view first. I think the second part then is going slow. So kind of walking through what the expectations were, what the problematic behavior was, or what that impact was, and being as specific as you possibly can because people really need details. And the reason I um, advise people to kind of go slow in this process is that you have a range of employees that some will catch on in a second. You know, all they need to do is sit down in your office one time and they're like, oh my goodness, like I never want this to happen again, I'm on board. You have other employees that you can imagine having the conversation with 10 different times and they're still going to be struggling to understand. So you have to go slow. And as soon as you notice that somebody has kind of picked up on your message, you stop. Because the, I think the problem that most new managers fall into is that they treat feedback universally across the board. They do it the same for every employee. Yeah. And what happens is then you're either too light on some people or you're way too heavy handed on other people. And either way, you're not being very effective. And, and you can tell. If you just open your eyes and, and, and engage them in the conversation, you, you should be able to see if you're coming off too heavy or too light. Right. There's yeah. signs, right? I mean, if, if they're like shutting up and closing down, then maybe we've come off too heavy. Right. And to, you know, back up a little bit. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and I think there's always, um, there's always some good that you can find and kind of sprinkle into the conversation, reassuring people that, you know, you're there to support them. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things that can make those feedback conversations actually one of the most powerful moments you have as a manager and, and, um, and really actually leave that conversation with more loyalty and having somebody feel more confident, which is what you want. Um, than having them feel kind of uh, put down. Yeah, you take the worst moment they've had in the company where you've got to give feedback and turn it into a kind of a building exercise where you get to restore confidence and hold hold them accountable. Boy, that's you make it through that, you can probably make it through a lot of stuff. Right, right. And, and most of us can think back on, you know, whether they were teachers or coaches or previous managers that we've had in our life, the ones that are most memorable that that we kind of go to their lessons time and time again, aren't the ones that were always nice or glossed over things. They they were the ones that were holding us accountable and challenging us on our performance and really, um, you know, giving us that message that they had confidence, but there was something that could be done better. I mean, those are the people that are so effective. Yeah. And oh, so, absolutely. Yeah being, yeah, being able to do that well, I think, is a, a tremendous leadership skill. Well, Robin, as we wrap it up, um, what would you say is the one thing? If there's one thing I could do as a manager to make sure that I'm keeping my most talented people from quitting, what would you say that one thing is? Oh, I would talk to them. So, yeah, find any opportunity you can to just kind of sit down, get to know them, get to know what their aspirations are, and then you will just be amazed at how you can open opportunities for them and, and really help build that, that loyalty. Yeah, no, that's great. Great advice. And, you know, it's you started hiring them by talking to them. You may as well keep talking to them through the whole <laughs> process. Uh, Robin Camerote, we appreciate you. Keep up your great work there at robincamerote.com. Well, thank you, Dr. Matt. I love the show. You bet. We'll have you back. Continue to pick your brain. Uh, Robin Camerote's her name. You can go find that article also in Inc. Magazine. How to Keep Your Most Talented Employees from Quitting. We'll take a break, come back. When we come back, we'll be talking about whitewashing the silver screen. One of our producers is going to go in-depth and uh, talk a little bit about Hollywood. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, anyone can be a real-life hero. You don't need a cape, super strength, or a sad backstory to help someone in need. But to play a hero on the silver screen, there's one physical characteristic that just might be a, uh, that that just might give aspiring actors an edge. That characteristic being white. Here to weigh in on this issue is Madeline Dresden, our life lesson segment producer. What do Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton, and Emma Stone all have in common? Acting talent for sure. But physically speaking, they all have blonde hair, fair skin, and light eyes. Basically, they look very, very white. And yet another important thing that they have in common is that they have all been cast to play Asian characters. Emma Stone played Alison Ng, a Hawaiian Chinese woman in the movie Aloha. Scarlett Johansson will play Major Kusanagi in a remake of the Japanese film Ghost in the Shell. And Tilda Swinton is slated to play the Ancient One, a Tibetan man who mentors Doctor Strange. Alison Ng, Major Kusanagi, a Tibetan man. Emma Stone, Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton. Yeah, I'm seeing a problem here, and it's called whitewashing, in which white actors are repeatedly cast in roles that rightfully belong to a person of color. Studios often defend their whitewashed cast by saying that they need white leads if they want their movies to do well. Recently, Ridley Scott famously said about whitewashing the movie Exodus, I can't mount a film of this budget and say that my lead actor is Mohammed so-and-so from such-and-such. I'm just not going to get it financed. Racist sentiment aside, the sad thing is I actually believe the guy. It probably is more difficult to get funding for a movie that stars a non-white lead, even if the story is literally set in Egypt. But isn't that something that we should try to change? How can we ensure that people of color get to represent themselves in movies instead of being replaced by white actors? First, we need to change some of our misconceptions. Everyone celebrated Leonardo DiCaprio finally getting his Oscar, but he's also been cast in a lot of Oscar-worthy roles, which means that he gets more opportunities to be nominated. Minority actors, generally speaking, are not given that same opportunity. So if it was difficult for Leonardo to get an Oscar, just imagine how hard it is for them. And if you think that this is an issue of talent, meaning people of color just aren't as good at acting and therefore don't deserve to get good roles, then you really need to take off your American blinders and go watch some international films. They will blow you away. Also, Hamilton, anyone? That smash hit musical is taking America by storm, and it's the story of our founding fathers as told by people of color. The cast of Hamilton received an unprecedented 16 Tony nominations and won 11 of those awards. Whitewashing is clearly not an issue of talent or of audience appeal. Clearly, Americans are totally down with a colorful cast and consider them talented enough to give them awards. They just need to be given a shot. Now, to be fair, things are changing. I am seeing that more and more black actors are getting opportunities to shine. I 100% support their cause. But as an Asian American, I have to say that Asian actors are in a fast-sinking ship. The fact that black actors are further along on their road to equality than Asians are just goes to show how much of an issue this really is. And I'm talking about roles that are specifically written for Asians. When those are given to white actors, we're no longer talking about talent. George Takei, who plays the beloved character of Sulu in the original Star Trek series, summed it up best when he voiced his outrage over Tilda Swinton being cast as the Ancient One. He posted this to Facebook. We can't keep pretending that there isn't something deeper at work here. It is not about political correctness. We're talking about the systematic erasure of Asian faces from film and media, the lack of opportunity, and the invisibility of a whole segment of our society. Instead, Asians are the butt of jokes. 
or are cast only in certain roles that continue to marginalize us and send signals to society that we are not leading men and women. His powerful tirade resonates deeply with me now, but if I'm very honest, the issue of whitewashing wasn't important to me until a few years ago. I liked seeing white faces on the big screen because it was representative of what I saw every day. But in 2014, everything changed with the release of Disney's Big Hero 6. America adored the lovable, inflatable Baymax, but I was stunned by the protagonist. He was a half-Asian character voiced by a half-Asian actor. Someone just like me. I was struck by how shocked I was and how moved I was to see someone who looked like me and whose family looked like mine doing heroic, kick-butt things. And all I could think was, so this is what white people have been experiencing their whole lives, their faces, and their experiences all subscribing to a heroism that looks like it could be theirs. And I understand now why it is so important for all people, maybe even kids especially, to feel like they belong in heroic situations too, surrounded by heroes who look like them and who come from the same places that they came from. Times are changing, and I hope that you'll join with me in making a world where my kids won't have to sift through the entire movie industry just to find a hero that they can finally relate to. Heroes of color shouldn't be an exception. They should be as visible as the 70% of the world's population that is not white. So sign those petitions, celebrate the genius of Hamilton, and ask for more of the same. Because my kids and other kids of color deserve for their shades of heroism to be represented too. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning or bottom of the morning, wherever you find yourself. I'm telling you, it's Tuesday. And it, it, it almost feels like Wednesday, the way this week is flying. Trying to be optimistic. Is it because it's my last week? Yes. Is this your last week? Yeah. Well, I'm my last day is next Tuesday. Holy cow. Where, I didn't even know you were going. Really? You've been like no, celebrating in your office no, for the past couple days. It's sad. We're going to miss you. Really? Yeah. Really? Yep. Really? Yeah. One more. T- so. We will miss you. We will miss. Miss the, as in like. Like the weekly visits some... to HR with you. We miss that. We will miss gasping and wondering what's going to come out of your mouth next. Miss that. We will miss running uh, employees to the hospital, those that have been eating your ice cream, your ice cream, you know, dessert stuff. I mean, we're going to miss you. We're going to miss the the embarrassments, the audio we thought was going to be played that never made it to air. We're going to miss that. We're going to miss having microphones left on. Okay, <sighs> it's not my fault when microphones get left on. I'm just going to. We're going to miss all of that point that out right there but most importantly benjamin lamar wasden we will miss you really yeah really truly we'll miss you and yours now truthfully truthfully said really will you really really yes actually i will miss you really yes you're like the you're like the brother that i never liked but i had and i didn't know i liked him till i lost him That's what you like. And so, yes, I will miss you. Okay, that, that sounds a little bit more heartfelt and genuine. Yeah. 
I do. You're like the child that I didn't know I had. And then <laughs> I, I lost child. you. And then I'm like, I don't think he's mine. <laughs> he doesn't look like me. He doesn't act like me. That's what you're like. So, of course, I will miss you. But, man, I'm glad you're going. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm going to miss you. Anyway, uh, yeah, so Ben's leaving, uh, but not for about a week. We've got plenty of time to still celebrate and have fun with Ben and have fun at Ben's expense. Then I'll be That's picking up That's what I'm that. really here for, isn't it? No, it's not. We'll, but we've got – we'll get to that today, more fun with Ben. Plus we have a bunch of stories. It's ice cream sandwich day for heaven's sakes. An angel. Just got some ice cream. Uh, ice cream in the 1900s, as early as the 1900s, people were eating f- ice cream on two graham crackers for a penny. An ice cream sandwich was invented. And now Ben has been – he's going to be making ice cream sandwiches for all of us for his going away party. Great news for there. Um, we've also got a bunch of information. Uh, we will be telling you Prince William made a little faux pas talking about uh, Princess Kate's cooking abilities. We'll, we will give you an update on that and also you know, clarify what you should say or shouldn't say about your spouse's cooking abilities on national you know, media. You've got to be careful. We'll get to that as well. Plus, Ron Hager will be in the house, and Ron will be teaching us, of course, about how to live longer and have healthier lives as he's an expert, hello, in, uh, in death prevention. That's the title we gave him last time, and I think it's here to stick. We'll be getting together with Ron Hager, Professor Dr. Ron Hager as well. But first, let's get to the lines, find out what's going on around the rest of the country with Sadie Nielsen. Sadie. Lots of good things going around and bad things going around the country right now. Um, A new law went into effect in Texas on Monday that allows certain students to bring guns into classrooms, with supporters saying it could prevent mass shootings and critics saying the measure will endanger safety on campuses. The so-called state campus carry law allows people 21 and older with a concealed handgun license to carry pistols in classrooms and buildings throughout public colleges, colleges, including the University of Texas system, um, which is one of the largest, the nation's largest schools. Another 10 cases of Zika virus were announced in Florida on Monday, bringing the total number of cases in the Sunshine State up to 14. And um, there are many concerns about the mosquito-borne illness arrival to, to the U.S. The newest cases were contracted from infected mosquitoes in the same one square mile area, just down north of downtown Miami, where four other cases were announced on Friday. A New York FBI agent pleaded guilty Monday to giving false information to the Bureau about his contact with foreign nationals in an effort to cover up his actions on behalf of the Chinese government. Uh, his name is Kung Shang Chung, otherwise known as Joey Chung, failed to disclose to the FBI that he had contact with one or more foreign nationals, according to the c- criminal complaint. Uh, he allegedly acted on behalf of Chinese Chinese interests on multiple occasions. The complaint is stated back in March of this year, but was only unsealed on Monday following his plea. And finally, a Virginia Police Department shared a photo of a smartly dressed dummy allegedly used by a driver to bypass carpool lane rules. The Fairfax County Police Department tweeted a pair of photos showing a wig-wearing mannequin dressed for the day at the office sitting in the passenger seat of a vehicle. The tweet said the driver was using the mannequin to drive in the HOV lanes of the Interstate 66, which are reserved only for drivers with one or more passengers. 
wow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a funny story because when I first got here uh, and found Ben um, in the bushes in the front of the broadcasting building, he his first idea for a job was to be a mannequin in the carpool lane and just sit with people. And I'm like, well, you don't need to be a mannequin. You could just sit in the carpool uh, you can be in the seat and, and get people into the carpool. He's like, how much do I charge? And do you remember that whole discussion? Ben? Do you know what inspired me for that? What? The live elf on the shelf, like yeah. Yeah. movement. Yeah. Yeah. That, that didn't turn out so great. Did it? Ben started another business, the live elf on a shelf where he would um, rent himself out to sit on a shelf and watch kids and determine if they're <laughs> naughty or nice. Which, uh, again, that was, I think, the first time he was arrested. <laughs> second. Second, sorry, actually. Second time. Um, and I, well, I was actually arrested not because of the service, but actually because I was breaking the, the fireplace mantles. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. You thought that they could handle your weight, but uh, that, life elf on, that live elf on the shelf, that was a really great idea. I know, like I, I and that. I tried it in in Florida last time I I did it, yeah. and so I should be able to start it up again in well, yeah, in here in Utah. But just know your records from Florida also carry here. Really, just, just know that. Oh. Just, just don't want you to be sad. Dang it. Well, Sadie, thanks. Uh, that was um, it was great news that just brought me down memory lane with good old uh, Ben Hamin. Hey, uh, here's a crazy deal. Prince William got himself in a load of trouble. The Duke of Cambridge has poked fun at his wife's culinary skills, joking that the standard of home cooking was what kept him slim. This is some audio, by the way, a video and the audio from the video of uh, of the Duchess. Live streaming. Live streaming of yeah. the Duchess of, Cam- of Cambridge cooking in her kitchen. Pretty normal. Like, I, I don't see anything no. wrong with it. The funny thing is Prince William, I mean, it's just a normal kitchen scene. It's kind of boring, quite honestly, to watch. Uh, but the kitchen, the, but the Duke blew it because he said the reason he's so skinny is because the Duchess, she's not a great cook. Hmm. Uh-oh. What is she doing now? She's bringing a pig in. What are they doing with the pig? So this is a her. Whoa! What the? Look, he's still just doing the dishes. He's not moving away from the dishes. I think this is a normal scene. And what's with the pig? Yeah. I think they're having pork chops tonight. That's oh, no. you know what? That's uh, I can't watch this. Yeah. She's not gonna. Yeah. Get. Wow. Just maybe just turn it off. Yeah. That's... I can't. Maybe he has a point. I don't know. I don't want to be the one that says that, but right. I don't know what she was doing with that pig. Mm. <laughs> that pig did not want to be there. And the explosion. Yeah, what was that, that about? That was odd. I'm not sure I think that was the tea it was on. Mm, interesting. Just they do drink a lot of tea. Well, nothing makes the pork go down like tea. <laughs> Little tea. Did you see this story? Talk about scary. Mama bear. Mm. So you're just in bed, let's say, right? You get up at about 5 a.m., you hear something in your basement, in your house, I mean. You walk downstairs, and you find a mama bear and her cubs in your home. Mm. In your home. Yeah. And the bear chases you up the stairs. 
Because now it's his home or her yeah, home. It's her me. home. This is where she's raising her cubs and she's trying to turn on cable, which is super hard when you don't have human thumbs. We'll show the video. You got to watch the video. It's on our Twitter page. But the guy walks downstairs and he sees the bear coming up the stairs. What do you do? He's like, oh, it's in the <laughs> it's on the stairs. And he just screams. What else can you do but scream? Yeah. And I don't think a house door could hold a bear. No, seeing as most of them are filled with cardboard. So what do you do? Not sure. You're on the second story of your home. You got mama bear kind of mad. Play dead. Just roll over and play dead. Is that your answer? Yep. Well, hmm. Maybe God a bless diff- you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's been great working with you. This bear just, it's its scary video. What'd they do? They just called for help. Just tried not to overstimulate. But the bears are walking up their stairwell. Oh, wow. Just looking for stuff. And they're cute as can be. But they just lock their doors and then they, you know, bears are smart, but they just called for people, help. Wow. It went on for about 45 minutes. They're just out in the hallway rummaging uh-huh. around? They were actually down like in the kitchen cooking a late night snack apparently. Okay. Well, you get hungry. The weird moment is when the microwave turns on. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. Totally crazy. But we'll have the video on. But no, no one died. It's all good. It's all calm. Everything's good. Wow. Eventually they left. After about an hour. They just left the way they came in. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, Yeah. I I don't know what I would do. I would obviously find a door and close it, but you know that's not going to hold. Right. But apparently they they didn't chase them down, like you said. Don't overstimulate. Just don't stimulate them. Just just keep the door shut, and they called for help. But you know what it was? I'll tell you. His roommate left the sliding doors open. Mm. Big mistake. Always get rid of your roommate. No, lock the doors. Oh, sorry. Always lock your doors. Yeah. They're eventually going to leave. They don't want to stay in your house. No. This is another important reason why I'm going to show this one to my kids and say, this is why we don't leave food under our beds. Right. Don't take food up into your rooms or it's the true. bears are going to want to get in your rooms. You leave the food, and the bears show up. They're probably going to want to eat through the door to get to your food. So. There was that story where the man punched the guy, the bear's throat. And the bear ran away. He could have tried that as well. Yeah, we have that story. Yeah. Would you punch the mama bear or the cubs? Probably the mama bear. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, that was a test for your manhood and your future. Hmm. Don't punch a bear, Ben. Why not? There are other ways. Unless the bear's got his teeth near your throat, don't be punching him. Don't provoke the bear. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't tickle the bear? No, I haven't. Either have I. Well, it's don't poke the bear, but. <laughs> I heard, don't tickle him. No. I'd probably tickle a bear. Eh, you probably would. They're furry. By the way, would you tickle the mama bear? No. No. You tickle the cubs, and then you run. <laughs> Just once. Just once. Anyway, we'll post that on our Twitter page, at Dr. Matt Show. You're going to want to see that. That's one that you show the kids. This is how we're going to use it collectively to get our kids to keep from bringing food all over the house and taking food up to their rooms. 
because this is what bears will do. It's intimidation 101. We got so much to talk about. Well, we will uh, be visiting with Dr. Ron Hager, who's going to help us figure out how not to die. Always useful. I mean, seriously. Useful tips. How not to die. One little rule at a time. He's slowly eking out. Couldn't you out. rephrase that on how to live better? Yeah. How to live longer. Hmm. Yeah, we'll but, look at that. We'll have I to think, workshop that. I think that, it's a better tease that. to tease that he's the guy that keeps you know the d- death away. It just sounds more powerful. We'll get to Dr. Ron in a minute. Uh, also, later, we'll be talking with our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show. And, of course, we'll find out uh, about the hero of the day. It's all here, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're pleased to have Dr. Ron Hager back with us again. Uh, Ron is Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. His expertise is chronic disease prevention. He's also known as the death preventer. I, <laughs> you know, that started a, a couple of weeks ago or something. I think you mentioned yeah. that. and you, I, you, I, I never remember it until I come back you here. You stop death. I try to. <laughs> it's just, I think, a really cool title. <laughs> the Death Preventer. You're the Death Preventer. Yeah. Um, today you're going to be talking about a new study out um, about alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, alcohol is kind of a touchy subject. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you talk about, like, you know, overconsumption of alcohol, you know, people losing control of their them, themselves, uh, you know, because they drink too much and, you know, they, you, you know, you can, you can talk about all those sort of the the negative impact on society, on families, on right. productivity at work. Or, uh, you can talk about it in terms of uh, health care costs. You can talk about it in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, automobile accidents, uh, death. I mean, all kinds oh, of things. Yeah. But that's all mostly tied to, you know, the issue of alcoholism or being yeah. an alcoholic oh, yeah. or, or not being able to control consumption. Excessive, right. Yeah. Uh, but when you talk about, you know, the health risks associated with even, you know, light to moderate drinking, uh, it, it, it can, you know, cause a lot of problems. Well, I mean, because it also seems like every study is different. A glass yeah. of wine is good for you, you hear. Yeah. You know, a beer isn't accepted, makes you gain weight or whatever. So what are we supposed to believe? Yeah, that, that's a, I mean, and it's that, hard too because we're we're Mormons and we don't drink anyway. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. The, but the research is pretty clear. Yeah, the research is getting more clear, uh, Matt. That's actually kind of exciting. But uh, like I said, though, I think you're going to see a lot of resistance. I mean, there yeah. are, you know, there there's always evidence, you know, in terms of research, you know, to support just about anything you want to support. Right. Uh, like you said, there's plenty of evidence to show that. You know, mild to moderate alcohol consumption maybe reduces risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, you know, and then there's other evidence to show that the reason that's the case is is partly because of the ethanol, which is what makes a beverage alcoholic. You know, right. it has alcohol. That's what the ethanol. The ethanol is the alcohol. Um, but a bigger part of that is comes from what the alcohol is made of. It's you know a plant source. Uh, 
you know, for example, in wine, it's usually grapes. Right. And so some research shows that uh, whole grape juice is actually as or more effective at lowering wine. risk of cardiovascular disease than wine. Uh, so like I said, it's, it's tricky. But uh, this study that just came out uh, uh, in May, I think it was, uh, uh, in the journal Addiction, which is the, uh, which is the journal uh, for the society uh, for the study of addiction, uh, it's called Alcohol Consumption as a Cause of Cancer. Oh, wow. And the author... Uh, Jenny Connors from New Zealand, she she kind of took all the evidence from about the last 10 years and uh, and, and kind of uh, put it all together in a in sort of a, a, I guess what you might call a meta-analysis, where it, it's not exactly a meta-analysis. Her study is more of a review of everything, uh, but she makes some very strong and convincing arguments in more than one area uh, that there is a causal role uh, for... Uh, consuming alcohol and at least seven different cancers and probably more. Really? Causal? Causal is what she's saying. And, you know, when you – and, and she, she explains all this. You know, she talks about, you know, how epidemiology, you know, is uh, – you know, at, at best you can make some inferences. But, you know, when you look at 10 years of yeah. research and everything kind of points the same direction, uh, you know, then the, then the, the ability to infer – you know, become stronger. All of this supposedly circumstantial evidence, you know, if if, if it all corroborates each other, it can actually become pretty convincing, pretty, right. pretty strong. Right. Yeah. So she is actually saying that there's a causal link uh, between uh, alcohol consumption and uh, 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 pharyngeal cancer, uh, cancer of the larynx, uh, esophageal cancer, liver, colon, rectum, breast cancer. Wow. Uh, so it's basically you think about it. I mean, maybe with the exception of something like breast cancer, it's it's all the all the the tissues or organs in the body mm-hmm. that uh, you know process or oxidize the alcohol. And when you think about it in terms of kind of things above the shoulders, like uh, oropharyngeal cancer or uh, esophageal cancer, something like that. I I looked into that a little more, and it turns out that uh, it's not so much the ethanol. In fact, there's very little research apparently to show that ethanol or the alcohol component of the beverage uh, is related to cancer risk. It's, it's the, I guess, the, the, the metabolites or it's the, it's the things that the alcohol becomes when the body oxidizes it or metabolizes it. Hmm. And, uh, uh, and, and that begins in the mouth. So the, the digestive process actually begins in the mouth, and so as the alcohol is broken down, even before it gets you know past your stomach, right? Um, it's producing these these compounds uh, that are causally linked, uh, not only in animal studies but now in humans uh, to cancer risk. And so, and so what happens is, you know, these chemicals can cause uh, cellular mutations in the DNA, and you know the body can. Often, you know, oftentimes repair mutated DNA, or there's a situation called apoptosis, where a defective cell uh, commits basically a form of suicide, kind of a self-destruct mechanism. Uh, but if neither one of those things occur, and the cell is allowed to replicate, then you could very well have the beginnings of cancer. And 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 what's interesting is uh, even. Uh, the research is now indicating that with these seven cancers, um, the the uh, 
the amount of alcohol that you need to consume isn't necessarily excessive. You know, you could be considered a moderate drinker, which is, you know, what the recommendation is, you know, that if you're going to drink, do so in moderation. Right. But there's now – the evidence is indicating that even among moderate drinkers, especially if they have uh, genetic predisposition. And so all of this points to uh, what are called polymorphisms. These are weaker, less penetrant genes that we all have. And you just don't know which one – who's got it. You don't know who's got the genes yeah, that will yeah, – Yeah, in fact, in fact, alcoholism as a, as a condition or a disease uh, is thought to be – at least, at minimum, fifty to sixty percent genetic. So, in other words, wow. a single yeah. exposure could put a person over the edge, just because they have that genetic predisposition. And that, and these genes, whether they're you know stronger penetrant genes or more often these less penetrant polymorphisms, uh, you know, wh- whichever it is, uh, it's it's hard to understand, you know, what you know your condition may actually be. Although, you know, now with the you know, the, the, a, a kind of a description of the entire human genome, more and more uh, research and assessment is being done in the area of finding out, you know, who is actually at risk for certain things because right. you can do that with, uh, you know, just a blood sample now. But it, it's so – it's so you don't know if genetically you're predisposed um, or if you'll have this – the gene for some of these cancers maybe. But I guess one of the issues is many would say – but. It helps me relax, yeah. right? It takes the yeah. burden of life off a little bit. I don't need to get drunk. I just it just calms me. Right. It, it's a it's basically a depressant. Yeah. Um, you know, it helps people forget their problems. Uh, from a social perspective, I mean, drinking is is, is a super common thing, right? I mean, I mean, it's, if it, it, others if, will do marijuana, and others will just go get a yeah. Xanax. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's from part doctor. Yeah, it's part of. Uh, it's part of celeb- you know alcohol consumption is part of celebrations yeah. it's part of uh, uh, discoveries it's part of it's part of all kinds of things and that's why it gets so touchy when you start yeah. if you start telling people that you can't that, that even a single drink of alcohol uh, may elevate your risk of cancer um, that's you, it it's you, like I'll risk it yeah yeah well or but, yeah and, and who knows where it's going to go because we're talking about a huge industry we're talking right. about a lot of money well and a lot of people don't even know it's a risk and we're talking about cultural yeah uh, that's right. uh, uh, traditions basically well, yeah. yeah and and social you know social status and hierarchy and I mean there's so much involved in this discussion let's take a break come back we'll continue talking with dr. Ron Hager about uh, alcohol and again it's not just about the excesses of it. It's just about there's information you need to know, health information, you know, real data from studies, real studies um, about uh, how it's impacting you. We'll be back. Stick with us, folks. Ron's going to keep us from dying one way or another. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us in studio, Dr. Ron Hager, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. He is a chronic disease prevention expert and death preventer, we call him. He wears a white robe and doesn't have a sickle. He has, what do you have? A 
A shepherd's I, staff. Maybe, maybe I guess. I don't know. I, Death preventer. <laughs> Today he's talking about the research, especially the latest research on alcohol. And again, you've talked about it's a touchy subject. We don't want to you know, tell somebody how to live, but your goal is to say there's research, there's data that proves yeah. that drinking has a causal effect, uh, drinking alcohol has a causal effect on seven different cancers. Yeah, exactly, Matt. You know, and and this this is actually kind of a compilation of of sort of conclusions, I guess, based on uh, a very comprehensive uh, amount of research, I would say, during the last 10 years. This research has been conducted by the World Cancer Research Fund, the American Institute for Cancer Research, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, and the Global Burden of Disease Alcohol Group. Wow. You know, I mean, these are not small organizations, and these are not, uh, uh, you know, uh, biased organizations. They're not out to uh, I don't think do anything other yeah. than ruin your uh, party. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're they're just trying to you know figure out what what what's real out yeah. there. And and now another thing I wanted to mention is that for the, the the causal link between alcohol consumption and the various cancers that have been identified uh, for that that link, there is what's called a dose response relationship. And so uh, it is true that you know that the more you drink the higher your risk. And that can actually be exponential. Right. It's not just some linear thing. Uh, you know, you get into the higher amounts of alcohol consumption and your risk can really take off. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the lower uh, amount of consumption, uh, you know, your risk is lower. But uh, the, the kind of the take-home message from all of this is that uh, your risk of, of cancer uh, – is is elevated with every single drink that you mm-hmm. take, uh, even if it's just one. Well, there's some people that they won't eat a potato chip because it's it could hurt them. It could cause cancer, right? Or be, but they will throw right. down alcohol yeah. at the party on the weekend, right? And and that you know now we're kind of getting into a whole you know behavioral issue and the way people rationalize or justify mm-hmm. their behaviors and uh, and that can be. You know, a pretty complex thing. But be aware, I guess, is part of what you're saying. Health is health is health is health. And yeah. if you know something isn't healthy, I mean, there are still benefits. Sure. Right. And, and, but and, and, weigh, your, weigh your benefits. Right, right. I mean, it, you know, people go to a social engagement uh, and they drink a little bit of alcohol, maybe a glass of wine or something like that. And and they're having a good time yeah. and they're feeling good and they're saying, well, okay, if there's a risk, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say, well, it's, you know, the, the, the benefit outweighs the risk. I mean, people do that mm-hmm. all the time. You know? and, and some probably can't fathom that I'd lose all my friends. Yeah. Or something. Well, that's one of the issues. Right. You know, it's like, well, if I don't drink, then uh, I've got to find a whole new group of friends. I've got to find a whole new section of society to belong to right. or something like that. But so your friends are about, I guess your friends are coming from drinking or is it, I thought you guys were friends. Yeah. Well, so yeah, you're right? you're I mean you're you're making some great points. Um, you know, oh, the, the worldwide the evidence um is is I, I mean I, I you tell me if this surprises you or not, but from a public health perspective, uh, alcohol is estimated to have caused approximately a half a million deaths. What? Uh worldwide. A year? Uh well, that was in 2012. Obviously, it takes a while yeah, you know, to accumulate all this data. But in 2012, a half, half a million human beings. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is about, which is almost 6% of all cancer deaths worldwide. 
that is attributed to alcohol consumption. And again, to be fair, most of that is probably the people who are over-consuming. Sure. But the evidence is pointing more and more towards the fact that even just a little bit uh, can make a difference. And, yeah. You know, and I, I remember, you know, my daughter, she just came back from a some kind of like an outdoor adventure uh, program thing and uh, that, that she did for the for a week. And she, she said that they talked about this little lesson about, you know, how to, you know, not not be tolerant of, uh, you know, things by saying by convincing yourself that, well, just a little bit is OK. Mm. And. You know, and there's some truth to that, and, and maybe there's some exceptions to that. I don't know, but they gave the example of something like, uh, you know, if 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 you were very hungry and somebody had offered you, you know, some brownies, but you knew that uh, those brownies were made with just a very small amount of dog poop, yeah, in them, just a tiny, tiny bit, yeah, you know, spread out over the whole plate I mean, of brownies, it's hardly know. any, yeah. Would you still eat it? You know. And if, I, I mean, I don't know, you know. So, Hold on. What day of the trip is it? Yeah, Because day yeah. one, no way. Yeah. But day yeah. five, bring maybe, me the maybe, donut. Yeah. Bring me the bring me the brownies. brownies. Yeah. So I, I'm not I'm not here to say that uh, uh, you know if a person drinks, they're they're doing something yeah. wrong, or if they if they don't, they're you know they're hyper righteous or something like that. I mean, this mm-hmm. is I'm just trying to present the. The information that's out there, trying to help people understand what's going on, and then of course they have to make their own decisions. But uh, but look at the guys that can't. If if you know you have the alcoholism gene, and your your dad took your dad died because of it, grandpa's uncle struggled with it, then and you choose not to drink, your friends aren't going to leave you. They're no. not going to not. I mean, they may not. We may not be able to go to the bar because of your history, or. But they're not going to they're not going to lose you as an LDS person. I go to parties where, like a cocktail party, where I'm speaking, right? And people are drinking, and yeah. you can. There's, by the way, a million other drinks you can drink, yeah. And so there there are ways to to kind of get around it if if that matters to you, and yeah. especially if to me we're so health conscious in so many ways. So, certain people are, and and some just whatever we just don't care, but. Health is everything, right? It's it's not just diet. Well, it's it, not just right, exercise, right? And 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 it's everything. Yeah, and most people don't think much about health until they don't have it, right? Then all of a sudden, it's like the most important thing in the world to them. Yeah, then it's everything. You know, it's easy to take for granted. Uh, but anyway, there's so so. I guess the, the the idea here, Matt, at the at the end of our segment is, you know, people have to make up their own minds. Uh, but I would like to leave. You know, you and whoever's listening with one question, you know, what would the world be like if there was no alcohol in it? None. Oh, man. If it was gone. Would we be a better world or would we not? We'd have to have other coping mechanisms. But our families might be stronger. Maybe so. Yeah. And maybe maybe less productivity lost at work. Um, maybe uh, less health care costs. I mean, the health care cost burden in the U.S. alone is almost $250 billion annually. Man, maybe a half a million people would still be alive. Maybe so. I don't know. Man, interesting stuff. I thought you were going to ask, why is somebody putting ruining brownies? <laughs> yeah. Doggy doo-doo, that's yeah. just messed up. Yeah. Good, 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 good question. <laughs> Ron Hager, thank you so much. Appreciate you being with us again. Ron uh, can be found at BYU if you go to Um, Look for the Exercise Sciences Department in the College of Life Sciences, Dr. Ron Hager, the death preventer. 
We'll be back, folks, with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. We're going to shoot it down now to two gentlemen, officers and gentlemen, two gentlemen that have uh, raised us all up, Spencer Linton, Jerem Jordan, BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Such a serious tone with Josh Groban. I know. Josh, Josh makes me feel lifted up, and being with you two lifts me even higher. Ah, uh, yes. Thank you. <sighs> then the Irish part of the song. Doesn't this Rory McElroy? <laughs> way what to drop. You two start playing. Way, way, way to drop a little uh, Irish golfer name. I think the that only was, one I know. That was more Scottish than Irish. It probably was. Hey um, guys, <laughs> um, I, I don't know if you heard the news, but I, I needed to ask you. Prince William made fun of Kate's cooking. Oh, Bill? No, no. Oh, sorry, sorry. Prince William, the Duke. Of Cambridge? Yeah, mm-hmm. Prince Bill. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's... <laughs> Don't do that. You're about to... You're offending the motherland. Um, uh, we separated the, from them. The MI6 are we, on their way over we, right yeah. now. We pounded those guys in we the Revolutionary War, man. They were one seed. We were 15, 16. We destroyed those guys. Would, would either of you ever be caught saying this line um, about his wife's cooking uh, that... That's the reason Prince William is so skinny is because his wife, the Kate, Kate, Duchess Kate, isn't a very good cook. And she's not very good in the kitchen. There, there, uh, are, there are some things you just don't say, especially on public record, if you're the Prince of England. You, you're Prince Bill. You don't say that, right? Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of nuclear war. No, um, exactly. And that might induce that in a kitchen. Uh huh. Did have you guys ever said? Have you are you have you ever questioned your wife's cooking, or has she ever questioned yours? My wife questions my lack of desire to cook all of the time, but I will never question hers because that's that's what she's passionate about. Honestly, if I had money, I would send her to culinary school. Why? Because she's really good, and, and she oh, loves she, it, and it makes her happy. You have money. You would just have to give up all of your other habits. <laughs> all of my other uh, responsibilities? Yeah. Like yeah. taking care of my kids and stuff? That would be great to have a wife uh, or any spouse that was in culinary school. I have, a, I have a brother-in-law that went to culinary school, and it's unbelievable what he can do. Yes. It's also very expensive. It is. <laughs> but you know what? Worth it. Worth every pound. Worth it. By the way, it's ice cream sandwich day. Every day is Ice Cream Sandwich Day. We don't need some special day. Wasn't yesterday National Girlfriend Day, too? Was it? Yeah. I missed that one. How did you miss that? I have no idea. (laughs) My people are getting behind. I'll have to get on them. Hey, I don't know if you guys heard this. You probably didn't because it's it's kind of breaking-ish news. Jimmer maybe going to China? Yeah. We did. Pretty cool, right? Oh, you guys did hear that. We did hear that. I think he's going to play for Sharknado. Oh, oh, the, Shanghai, the Sharks. Shanghai Sharks. Shanghai Sharks. Owned by Yao Ming. So here's the deal with China. Yeah. China has a lot of dough right now. So he, Jimmer Fredette is not the first former BYU athlete that's good at sports to go to China. Taylor Sander is headed to China as well. Now, he was playing in the top league in Italy, one of the best leagues in the world, 
and he's going to China next year because he's going to make double. Wow. So Jimmer is going to get paid in China. Really? Like, Are like, we ever going to be able to watch him on TV? No. Probably not. But like, but, what, uh, what figures? Like, well, what, what do you get paid? What do you, what do they get paid in China? Like a seven figure contract? Absolutely. I bet he gets seven figures. Absolutely. What? Oh yeah. Jimmer would make a seven figure contract deal in Europe. Would he? Let alone China. This is cool. So is China like? Is it is it below Europe in quality of play? Yes. the The best leagues are in Europe outside the NBA. So okay. Spain has the next best league. Tyler Haas plays in the second best league in the world. Wow. With his team in uh, Spain. There are leagues like Brandon Davies also signed with a team in Monaco that plays in the top French league. Mm-hmm. He's been playing in an Italian league as well as a French league again. Um, so yeah, you can, you can get paid, go overseas and play. I mean, Brazil has its own uh, basketball uh, league. There, a lot of countries have basketball. Shanghai Sharks. Shanghai Sharks owned by Yao Ming. Oh, that's cool. Houston Rockets. Well, and that's not bad. Shanghai, that's a great town. I've never been there. I can't say that it is. I hear that. Spencer, knows some, your word Spencer knows some Chinese, so share it with you. It, give us some Chinese, Spencer. Oh. <laughs> Which I, is Spanish for I can translate. Nino. <laughs> you, you want ribs. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Yeah, I hear, I hear Shanghai is known for its, uh, its hot wings. What? <laughs> They've what? got some of the best hot what? wings you've what? ever seen. Yeah. Shanghai hot wings. Hey, what? Hey, whatever you can get, you know. And barbecue. Oh, they've got good barbecue there. This has been the most potpourri discussion ever. Szechuan. <laughs> um, hey, <laughs> you guys still doing your show? Is that still on today? Top of the hour. Well, something changed. I don't know, Jerem. Should we do it? Oh yeah, we're yeah we're doing it. So we'll we'll talk about James Taffordet uh, signing with China. We'll also talk about ESPN and Fox. Uh, the D, the. Mm. Almost, almost pumping the brakes on uh, what Big Twelve expansion from their end. Uh, we t- discussed that yesterday, but what effect does it have on Big Twelve expansion? Will it slow it in any way? Uh, could it stop it? We'll discuss coming up. Wow. Michael Smith, uh, a co-author of an article in the Sports Business Journal, kind of breaking that news yesterday. He will join us to discuss. He's on the show. He's on the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, the movie Moneyball will be quoted in reference to why BYU is the obvious candidate for Big 12 expansion. Unless ESPN and Fox have their way. <laughs> yeah. Plus, what happened to Dennis Pitt at practice and what Sports Illustrated said about Taylor Sander. Mm. What a great show. Mm-hmm. Can, can you give Teasing us a, for days. Can you give us a little hint on what happened to Pitta? Did it involve a ball? Uh, it involved a It involved uh, a football. Scuffle. <gasps> Was it with a player or a coach or a fan? <laughs> I think it was with a mascot. No, I'm just kidding. <gasps> Even better. <laughs> it was with the Raven, Edgar Allan Poe himself. <laughs> oh he he fought. He Isn't fought. that awesome that their mascot is yeah. based on... Well, that just shows you. They're a whole different level. The writings level. of Edgar Allan right. Poe. Yeah. it's awesome. Skinny old Edgar. He's easy to take, though. Pitta could take him. <laughs> Pitta could take Edgar. Just hit him in the gut. Hit him in the gut. Okay, guys, that sounds like a great show. Everything else okay? Are you guys you healthy? You happy? It's oh, yeah. it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday, baby. The, the week Ball is camp three days away. Starts Friday. We're ready for Brigham Young. Are you ready? Guys, you're counting still. This is good. Okay. Oh, well. I, oh, by the way, 32 days until BYU plays Arizona. That but, is the jersey number of one Jimmer Fredette at Brigham. Boom! Mic drop. Wow. We got to end it on that. Mm-hmm. End it. Just end it. <laughs> Okay, we're going to walk away right now.
They've got to go wax. That's cool. Good job. Good job, guys. Knock them dead. How do they remember a jersey number? I mean, how do these facts stay in their mind that long? My mind has a really effective filing system. I think it's kind of how we know what day of the year it is. Like today is ice cream sandwich day. We only know that because it's on our paper right here. We. You might know a different way, but I'm sorry. I only know that way. Oh, okay. Um, Florida man. Hey, this is – we're here to help, folks. Remember, and on the show, we want to help everybody, not just those that have got their act together. We also even want to help the bad boys. Bad boys, bad boys. If you are a criminal uh, out there, folks, a burglar, for example, let me give you some advice. Do not use Facebook. Do not post your video bragging about your jewelry heist. Apparently, you won't believe this, a Florida burglar, guy from Florida, basically stole about $500,000 in a jewelry haul and landed himself and one of his accomplices in jail, police said, because he posted the whole video of him looking at the loot and stealing the, the stuff on Facebook, bragging. Radarius Glenn Collins, 18, uh, uploaded a video to Facebook on May 27th. His friend Marcus Terrell Parker, 27, was arrested with, uh, with Collins after the burglary on June 9th. They're still searching for a third suspect who is seen in the video in the passenger seat of the car flashing $100 bills to the camera. The video, which runs more than seven minutes long, has over 3,000 views, showed the men bragging about their illegal earnings, claiming, we got a safe. Can someone say, check, please? Sounded like Oprah. So if you're going to brag over social media, um, we'd probably recommend Instagram, correct? Always use Instagram for bragging about your jewelry theft. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You could also use... um, Maybe Snapchat. Snapchat, but you've only got six seconds of bragging. Then you're going to have to wrap it up. It's, it's a give and take, really. Yeah. It depends on the impact you want to have. If you actually want to go to jail, keep using Facebook. Uh, also, crazy story that will uh, make you hold on to your underwear. Birds of prey, you got to watch out for them, folks. They steal underwear. According to some swimmers in the U.K. and Scotland – Birds of prey in Scotland have been stealing their underwear from local swimmers. These swimmers go to, uh, I guess, I guess they're skinny dipping, and um, they they'll take their clothes off and then go jump in lakes. But then birds of prey swoop down and steal their underwear <laughs> to line their nests. They found. The stolen underwear is a great way to, to, to line their nests so that the, the eggs can just sit on top of the, of the underwear and it's just nice and cozy and warm. So if you're going to be skinny dipping, I'd tuck your undies away. Lock them down. Lock them down. I like to use a chain. I lock them to a tree. The bird will try. Get a heavy chain too. They're not going anywhere. By the way, I'd lock all your clothes down. Or, hey, here's another idea. Just keep your clothes on and don't go swimming. Or bring a swimsuit. That would save a lot of people a lot of grief. Exactly. I don't want to ruin the party, but 
How about just keep your clothes on? Then you don't have to worry about it. Hey, as you know, we like to end the show with a hero story. And our hero this time is a mystery man who saves a paralyzed man from a burning home. Then he disappears. Family members say a mystery hero broke down the door of a burning building, rescued their paralyzed son, who they were desperately searching for through the smoke-filled home in Chicago. It was a little after midnight when the fire started. We were awakened by someone banging on the door, yelling, get out, get out, said homeowner Lawrence Smith. Said he, he, uh, Smith said he immediately began searching for his wife, children, and grandchildren, but he couldn't find his paralyzed son. I have a downstairs, who, uh, a, a child downstairs, who, or a son who was partially paralyzed, and we couldn't find him. There was so much confusion, so much smoke at the time. That's when Smith says a stranger kicked down the door, went downstairs, and carried his 175-pound son out. This guy appeared out of nowhere, Smith said. Don't even know him. The man disappeared as firefighters battled the extra alarm blaze that left Smith's garage in ashes and the family's vehicles melted as part of their home charred and collapsed. Smith said, I'm just grateful his family survived. I could have lost everybody, he said. So somewhere in Chicago, there's a hero, a mystery hero, who ran in out of nowhere. Telling you, you don't believe in miracles, folks? You don't believe in divine intervention? Something going on there. That's the show. We're here to help you see the good in the world. And the good is everywhere. And by the way, you're part of it. You just have to have the eyes to see it. So join us again tomorrow. Three more hours of tools, information, solutions, and people in the know who can help you live healthier, happier lives. And we want to be a part of your life as well. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, make it a great one and look after each other.